Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We're just kind of shooting the shit because, yeah. because we had a really long episode last week. It was four hours. We talked about E3. If you haven't heard that yet. It was not technically four hours long. We, is, we still have held by our vow yes. never to do another four-hour podcast. And we have gone up almost literally to the exact limit of that technically being true. It is, yes. It was, it, it, you could round it up to four hours, but it was not technically four hours. You are correct. Uh, but we talked everything E3 up to basically Tuesday afternoon, so all of the big shows. There was, of course, more news and impressions and everything that came out during the rest of the E3 conference, so we're going to do a little follow-up on that. We also have some fun stuff to share. We have stories to tell. Uh, Sean has watched a bunch of Game of Thrones and has feelings. Yep, I have. I've, I've gone on a journey. I'm halfway through season six, so we'll we'll talk about some Game of Thrones. And we are going to do some video game therapy with me and the video game Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, which is a great game, but one I don't know if I have the ability to play. Interesting. So we are going to talk about that. Uh, so that'll be the end of the show. We'll do some stuff. Uh, quick piece of housekeeping. I want to remind everyone that our podcast miniseries for the summer... Mobile Suit Gundam, where we are watching all of the original 1979 Mobile Suit Gundam. Uh, it is out. Uh, episode 1 is out now. Episode 2 we're going to be recording in the next couple days. That'll be out next week, um, where we are talking up through episode 13 of the series. And it's a lot of fun to record. It's a lot of fun to watch that show. I have found, Sean, i got to tell you, every episode of that show is such a like three-course meal of mm -hmm. a piece of entertainment. I can't binge it like i have to watch an episode and then go do something else um so yeah. i'm watching it slower than anticipated and but but for a good reason it's like like you know i'll just give a little preview i watched the episode i watched an episode recently where amuro is just straight up dealing with ptsd yep and and like doesn't want to get up out of bed and go fight in the gundam and i'm like oh my god this is a lot this is a lot for you know i'm not used to this much in 20 minutes of anime yeah, no, I have been also keeping up with the Gundam. I think I have episode 12 and 13 to watch, and then I'll have watched okay. this whole whole session for our next episode. I'm right and close yeah. to where you are, yeah. It's it's very fun and weird to watch Game of Thrones and, and Gundam in pro close proximity because it is like the exact opposite feeling of watching an episode of television where you watch an episode of Gundam, and it's like 22 minutes long. And you're like, oh my god, that was like... That was so much in this one episode. And then you watch one episode of Game of Thrones, you're like, I feel like I have to watch three hours of Game of Thrones to get like the rough equivalent of the amount of plot covered and character covered in one episode of Gundam. It's I'd ridiculous. agree with that. Like, I, I envy the people who got to watch Gundam week to week when it was airing. Because what a satisfying show that would be to watch. You come in for one week, watch your half hour. It would tide me over for a week, easily. There's yeah. enough in those episodes. So anyway... Yeah. Listen to Weekly Suit Gundam if you want to hear more about that. Yes, I'm very excited to record that episode because Gundam, Gundam is good, Jonathan. Absolutely it is. So that's our piece of housekeeping. Let's do some stuff. Sean, do you have any stuff to share with us? Um, one, one stuff I want to share. I've got two things, I guess. I've got a video game thing. I've got a TV thing. I want to, I want to readdress just because it's so good. To, I, want, I need to bring up again My Roommate as a Cat. The anime that I talked about at the beginning of last week's show. Because watching all this Game of Thrones, I've been thinking about that show a lot. Because it is legitimately a better show than Game of Thrones. 
Um, so my if you have a Crunchyroll subscription, my roommate is a cat is a twelve episode uh, anime. It aired the last season of a- anime season, so that means all the episodes are out, so you can just watch the whole thing. It is a show that is about an like young, like probably twenty twenty one year old man named Subaru who is a novelist. Who at the very beginning of the series, his parents die in an accident, and then it kind of cuts to several months later. Um, and he hasn't really kind of processed all the grief and trauma, and he's trying to come up with an idea for a new book. So he goes to his um, his parents' grave and like has an offering for them, and like a little food offering, kind of traditional thing. And a stray cat jumps out and grabs one of the, the pieces of food that's in the offering. And then Subaru has an idea for his new novel is going to be something about a cat. So he takes this stray cat and adopts it. And so then the rest of the show is about him learning how to process his grief, learning how to connect with the people around him and build relationships, all while he's taking care of this cat. But the thing I realized I didn't talk about on last week's episode and why I needed to bring it up again is because that stuff is only what happens in the first half of an episode. Because, in the, because you know, each episode is a full self-contained story. The first half of the episode is Subaru's story and it's all his stuff. The second half of each episode are the events of that episode retold from the perspective of the cat who has full narration. Oh my god. So, so you're like in the cat's head and she has a voice actor. The cat's name is Haru. Um, and so you, you see... And it's not just like they use the same animation or anything because oftentimes the cat is doing her thing and Subaru is doing his thing and they intersect again. Um, but you see like what happened in that same time span of the episode from the cat's perspective and the cat is also learning all her life lessons because she was a stray um, who was like the biggest cat in the litter and had all these brothers and sisters she was taking care of. But, you know, when Haru is found, she's found alone and you kind of start finding out what happened to the other cats that are part of her family. So if you're a big cat person and you love cats and you like own cats and you like, that's not like, I like cats, but I'm not a huge cat person. If you are, this show will fuck you all the way up. Yeah. Because it's got some shit in it. My roommate is cat is very good. It's a very wholesome, fun show. Um, that will make you feel a lot of, a lot of strong emotions that again, like with, uh, mobile suit Gundam, it manages to tell, more of a story in 22 minutes than Game of Thrones occasionally managed to do in a whole season. So My Roommate is a Cat is very good. I don't usually talk about a lot of the random anime I watch on this podcast, but I only bring it up when it's a show I really enjoyed. So I think people should check that one out. I will check the shit out of that. That sounds awesome. It sounds like the really good version, like good Japanese anime version, of all those dog-based live-action movies we're getting in America mm-hmm. right now, like A Dog's Journey and A Dog's Way Home. I feel like I see a trailer for some movie about a boy and his dog every time I go to the movies. And they usually look like they're probably pretty bad movies, but I'm such a dog person, the trailers kind of work on me. But they also tell you the whole story in the trailer, so like yes. I don't need to go see the movie. <laughs> It's great. Yeah, and, and the great thing about this being an anime is you can be 100% convinced that no animals were harmed in the production of the anime yes. because it's all just animated. So They didn't have they, to put any peanut butter in that cat's mouth. Exactly. They didn't have to hurt a cat or anything. It's a, yeah. it's a totally fake cat. Yes. All right. Uh, some animators might have been hurt from overtime, but we won't you think know, about that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a bigger the problem. The, yeah, the bigger problem that we can fix right now. <laughs> all right. Um, awesome. I have... A couple of stories I want to tell. Uh, I so I okay. I'll I'll say you you talk about a TV show, so I'm gonna talk about a movie really quick. Okay. I went to see the new Men in Black movie, Men in Black International. Okay. And I wanted yeah. to see it because I enjoyed the trailers. And it's got Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth 
And I love those people. They were really good in Thor Ragnarok together. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll watch that. That looks fun. And the reviews for it were really bad. The yeah. movie is not as bad as the reviews say. It's okay. It's a very limp noodle of a movie. It's kind of sad in that way. Not as like limp noodle as like Dark Phoenix, which just had nothing going on. This movie at least has good actors who have good chemistry together. Like, I don't know, if you put Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson in like sexy suits and put them in a movie together, like you're not going to come out without anything worth watching, right? Yeah. But it is, I was kind of amazed. That movie, from like a writer's standpoint, fascinated me because it is a, it has a lot of good ideas for a Men in Black movie. It's got some interesting concepts in terms of like, uh, the Tessa Thompson character is a woman who her parents, when she was young, like they got like the thing where they wiped the minds of people, but they forgot to do the daughter. And so like she knows about Men in Black and she knew about them growing up and always wanted to go like join them and try to track them down. Great idea for a Men in Black movie. Yeah. They dispense with that in about two minutes, and I'm not even kidding with the two minutes thing. Like, it is her origin story. She gets in the door. They never mention it again. It's like they get rid, out, rid of that story as fast as they humanly can. The Chris Hemsworth character is like a venerated men in black agent who's kind of like fallen on hard times. Interesting idea. They don't do much with it. Like, there's just there's a lot of like interesting ideas in the movie. There's this whole relationship between Chris Hemsworth's character and Liam Neeson's character that... You don't even really know is there until the last 20 minutes of the movie and they try to kind of force it on you. But what I kept seeing is like, this is a pretty good, I think, like rough draft for a movie. But it is a rough draft and it got filmed. And like, it feels very awkward because like every joke, every one-liner, every beat feels like the placeholder beat. Like, I'm going to write the funny joke here later, but let me just put something in so I can get the structure out on the page, right? Totally reasonable thing to do if you're doing a first draft, but they shot that draft. So it feels like if you had given the people who written this wrote this movie like six extra months to like go in and punch up the jokes and make the dialogue work and flesh out some of the character moments and things, like it's a good outline for a movie, just didn't work. And it's kind of amazing to me because that's like most of the movies this summer have kind of been that way. We had John Wick 3 and Avengers Endgame and they were good. And then everything else has been okay, like Detective Pikachu, to terrible, like Dark Phoenix. But a lot of it just feels kind of underbaked to me. It's kind of funny if you look at the box office, other than John Wick and Avengers, everything has underperformed. This Men in Black movie flopped. Dark Phoenix flopped. Everything has flopped. This summer is actually still up over last summer at the box office, solely on the performance of Avengers, which is yeah. hilarious. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's... It's a movie that, like, I'm struggling to even know what to say about because I kind of forgot I saw it as soon as I got out of the theater. There was a part in the movie where I was just kind of bored. I walked out in the hallway and I could still hear the movie, but I was, like, on my phone answering texts from my brother because he's in Japan. We don't get to talk that much because we're, like, 16 hours apart. So I'm like, okay, they're doing something. I'm going to go out in the hall and talk. No. Wow. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it was it was an okay evening at the movies. I wish it had been better because... That, but that's how I've always felt about Men in Black. Like, the first movie's pretty good, but yeah. I've always wanted those movies to be better than they are, because I think there's a bunch of great ideas in them. Yeah, I like the first one quite a bit. Um, but other than that, like, like Men in Black just seems like a thing that Hollywood wanted to be a franchise. They bungled that idea so early yeah. that the fact that they, like... The fact that Men in Black 3 got made, I remember just being utterly fucking shocked that that movie actually came out. I never and saw Men in it. Black 3 is pretty good, I will say. Because it's got the whole thing where Josh Brolin is playing Tommy Lee Jones, and it's the time travel thing. 
yeah, like that's a fun idea, but it's yeah, like it being attached to Men in Black at all just made it like I don't want to. I just don't. I just like I can't. Like Men in Black is so like nineteen ninety nine two thousand yes. like that period that a new Men in Black movie is perplexing to me. The only thing that made me mildly interested in this one was just like the cast in in Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth are really good. They're really funny. So it's like, hey, if this is if they got a good script, like these are two actors that could nail a fucking good men in black script, but nobody has written maybe nobody has written like an amazing men in black script. Um because I feel like the first men in black is mostly just like a, the right time, right place kind of thing, and it's like, in, and it's well in, directed. It's Barry Sonnenfeld who did a pretty good job with it. Yeah, this this one is. Uh, it was directed by F. Gary Gray, who is probably best known recently for Straight Outta Compton and The Fast and the Furious Eight, The Fate of the Furious. I think that's one called. And he's a good director, but this one like clearly shows discomfort with special effects. Like I haven't seen this in a big Hollywood movie in a while, where it feels like everyone involved is uncomfortable with CGI. Like, just, like, the basic, like, eyeline matching with, like, CGI characters is off the whole movie. There's a lot where Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are, like, reacting to stuff, and it doesn't feel right at all. And I just, you, at, at a certain point, like, Chris Hemsworth is a pro at interacting with CGI after Thor. Yes. So I assume that's a directorial thing, because it also, the movie just looks cheap. It looks like a TV pilot. It... It's very strange. I Yeah, Men in Black had kind of the right chemistry back in 95 or whenever it came out, but... Boy, uh, it shows how desperate Sony is because they've got Spider-Man and they got Men in Black, and that's it. <laughs> and no, they're, they're going to make that Uncharted movie, Jonathan. It's going to, no, going to, you know, knock the box off box office apart. They're getting Tom Holland to play Nathan Drake. It's just, the worst idea I've ever heard just, in my life. But no. just, every time I read it, it makes literally zero sense to be casting. But it's you know, still better than all these rich properties to me. Yeah, they were going to have Mark Wahlberg as, as Nathan Drake for a while. So Tom Holland is at least better than that. I mean, Tom Holland is a better actor, probably, but he's less of a Nathan Drake still. Like he's oh, of like, course, he's like he's like twenty years too young. Yeah, he's fifty to twenty years too young to play the character, which is way too young to, to yes. pass off. Oh well. Anyway, we're getting off topic. But yeah, I saw that movie. It was okay. I wish it had been better. Um, okay, I also have a story from Thomas in Japan. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, what's, that what's, what's he up to? Well, you know, he's, he's teaching. He teaches English. And uh, so he's at, at this kind of private school. Um, and he teaches English. at People of all ages, it's basically just an English immersion school. All right? Okay. Yeah, And he told me a story yesterday, and I had to ask his permission to tell it on the podcast because I laughed so goddamn hard at this, Sean. So we'll see if I can get through this. But he was telling, he's been telling me for a while how, like, where he notices racism in Japan. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he went to Kyoto at one point, and everyone there was very cold to him, apparently, because they do not like foreigners in, in Kyoto, is what he said. Which, you know, we well, like, and we know that just from, like, just knowing Japan from the outside, it's a different kind of culture. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so obviously Japan has a certain xenophobic quality to its culture. Um, but like I would I would caution too much because it might just be that they don't like Thomas. You know, like Thomas is a nice guy. <laughs> but, you know, like not everyone's going to like him on, on first brush. So, it's, that's, you know, that's they fair. maybe just don't like Thomas. But this story is great because it doesn't really involve him at all. He was just in the room for it. Okay, um, good. Is he said there was an old man at his school who was very racist. And I said, oh, what, is, what does that mean, Thomas? Please tell me this story. He said, okay, well, there's this old guy who comes to the classes, and he's been doing it for a while, 
And they have these classes that are just dis- called discussion groups where they have people come in and they just get to practice. Their- there's like a topic for the day and you talk and there's a couple instructors in the room, but you just have a discussion in English, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the discussion was about tourism in Japan. And the topic moved over to at some point that like there were some areas of Japan that some people in the room felt were too crowded with tourists. And like it was becoming a problem, just like there's too many people, there were some economic issues. Oh, so far, so good. Yeah, but then topics the old... we're all familiar with. Like yeah. wherever you are, like, you know, there are too, too many tourists in some places and, and it can be frustrating for the people that live there. Yes. I get it. But then the the old man speaks up, and Thomas said, "Like this guy, he's been doing this for a while. doesn't doesn't have the best English, so he 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 has to be kind of very thoughtful about how he speaks, right?" And he says the sentence, and this is what made Thomas want to tell me the story. He says this in English. He says, "Now I don't want to be rude, but I think it's all the Chinese people." <laughs> and mm-hmm. that is the most Japanese way to be racist possible right sean yeah no like it's in my head i'm imagining it's basically japanese version of clint eastwood from gran torino yes like it's just like that's just that's just what's happening in my head but yes no that is not a not a rare sort of thing no but i just i love the i don't want to be rude. rude Yeah. But it's all the Chinese people. And apparently there were two like younger women in the class who were like, Oh, mister, you can't say that. That's and he's like, Why? It's all the Chinese people So I uh I loved that story. I see you're picturing Japanese Clint Eastwood. I'm just picturing Beat Takeshi is in the classroom <laughs> saying that because I mean that's, that's... Who yes. is the the Japanese Clint Eastwood if not Beat Takeshi, or the other way around? Who is the American Beat Takeshi if not Clint Eastwood? Clint Eastwood, exactly. Um, so yes, uh, that is Thomas's story, and uh, made me laugh very hard. Fantastic. Well, you told a thing about Japan, so I will tell a thing about a game made in Japan. Um, we do that a lot here. <laughs> yes, this is, we do do that a lot. So I in the last week, I sort of I started this a little bit before E3. Then E3 happened. I was like, why did I start playing this game before E3? I should have just waited for E3 and then played it after. So then after E3, I just marathoned and played all the way through um, Devil May Cry 4 Special Edition on the PS4, which is the re-release of that game with some new content on, on modern platforms to kind of... We resume my Devil May Cry stuff that I did way earlier in the year where I played through 1, 2, and 3 a little bit before Sekido came out. Um, and then now I'm getting back to it with 4 because I also want to play 5. Um, and Devil May Cry 4 is a really, really good game. Um, if you're interested in playing through the Devil May Cry series, like, don't skip over 4 for whatever reason you think you might want to. I know it got slightly mixed reviews when it came out because... It does this thing where you play through the first half of the game as Nero, who is a new character um, that is also in Devil May Cry 5, I know. And then you play through the second half of the game as Dante, the classic protagonist of the series. And I think some people didn't like that you had to wait to play Dante because they like Dante because Dante's fun. Um, And then also, when you play through the game as Dante, it's kind of like a bigger version of the last three levels of the first Halo campaign, where you go back through the levels you played at through before, oh, but it's like they're slightly remixed and they're new enemies and stuff. So it's not just like you're playing the same levels again, but they, it is, if you're someone that really hates whenever video games reuse content like that, like Devil May Cry 4 does that. Um, but that didn't bother me too much because so much of the, the game is about the gameplay. And specifically... What I found very ridiculous about Devil May Cry 4 is Dante is a... I've never seen this before. 
in in a game like this where the, the way they designed Dante was they basically looked at how he played in Devil May Cry 3 and said, what if we just broke every single rule for a video game design and just said, fuck it, let's make the most ridiculous character ever? Because in Devil May Cry 3, Dante had um, four different styles that he could pick from that changed what the circle button did. And you would switch those styles at the shop or in between levels in like the mission select screen. And it would be stuff like the trickster style, which makes circle button a dodge move. Or the sword master style, which makes it another melee attack button um, that does different kind of special melee moves. There's the gunslinger style that gives you special ranged attacks on the circle button. And then there's the royal guard style, which makes the circle button a block encounter. So like cool thing in that game because you can really change up the way you play. Um, and again, it all just changes what that one button does. Um, and then additionally, Dante could um, switch between two different melee weapons seamlessly using the right trigger and two different range weapons seamlessly using the left trigger, which uh, like would, the game like expects you to sort of switch between weapons on the fly in the middle of combos. And that's kind of how the game's combat is constructed why it's so much fun. So Devil May Cry 4, Dante basically plays like that, only they said instead of picking at like checkpoints or whatever what the circle button does with these styles what if we just made all four of them available simultaneously to the player and they're just selectable on the d-pad and also what if instead of having two toggleable weapons on the the triggers what if we made it three and so basically what you end up having is a character who at any given moment the circle button can do extremely vastly different things and you can have you are toggling between three different melee weapons that all have completely different movesets and three different ranged weapons that all have completely different applications and you end up in just just these like trying to piece together these ridiculous combos of where it's like okay i hit up on the the d-pad to be trickster style and i'm gonna teleport in front of the the you know the demon and then uppercut him with my sword and then teleport up to him and then knock him back down but then i'm gonna hit right on the d-pad so i can switch the sword master style i'm gonna press r2 to switch to my gauntlets and then i'm gonna press circle to go down and do a ground pound move on the gauntlets and then i'm gonna hit r2 twice really quickly to switch back to my sword and go slide over to this guy and hit him then i'm gonna hit down on the d-pad so then i press circle to block and then i hit left on the d-pad l2 to switch to my shotgun and then press circle to do this spinning shotgun move to hit everybody then i hit up on the d-pad again and dodge then hit right on the d-pad and press r2 again to switch my gauntlets and then i just hit circle again to do an uppercut it's like you are switching and toggling so many different things so quickly and it's like you know and it's something where it happens instantaneously so you can literally be doing a combo on the circle button with the swordmaster style and interrupt that combo with a dodge by switching to the trickster style by hitting up on the d-pad so you are just chaining together all the most crazy ridiculous horseshit and i have never in i have not in like the past 15 years or something played a video game where i like was playing it for you know play i played dante as like probably seven or eight hours as playing as this character and an hour seven i would still hit situations where i was fumbling with the controls like i'm someone who's played video games my entire life i played a lot of character action games i consider myself fairly adept at playing video games like even red dead redemption 2 which a lot of people had issues with the controls i like was fine with it past like the first hour i got it devil may cry 4 i was like in the middle of like a flustered thing where it's like oh god what weapon do i have on what the fuck does the circle button even do am i dodging am i doing an attack like what is even happening 
Um, and it's so just invigorating to have a, a like really seasoned, skilled development team just look at their combat thing and say, what if we just fucked all this shit up in the best way possible? Like, this is not a criticism. It's so much fun. And it works so well because you play the first half of the character as Nero, or the, of the game as Nero, who is a much more normal kind of character, action character, and he's very fun to play as, but he's much more constrained. And then you play as Dante, and it's just like, they just take all the fucking, the, the kid gloves come off, like, everything comes off, and the game's just like, fuck it, just go buck fucking wild with this shit, and it's so much fun. That sounds like a great structure. It sounds like they spend the first half of the game sobering you up, mm-hmm. and like, calming you down, so that when they decide to just get you fucking drunk on power, you're gonna feel the impact of it. Yes, no, because that is definitely what it feels like, where, because they also, they do this great thing where all the points, like the upgrade points you accumulate as Nero, transfer over to Dante, so so that means you just basically, as soon as you get to play as Dante, you can unlock almost everything for him immediately, if you've been playing well, um, and getting a lot of those, uh, like, souls or whatever they're called, that you unlock, like, brave souls, I think they're called, they, they're their unlock currency, um, so yeah, so you immediately start playing as Dante, and it's just like, Oh my god, like, I went from having, like, a dozen or so different cool-looking combos I knew as Nero to, there's, like, like, there must be people still discovering whack-ass shit you can do with Dante and Devil May Cry 4. Like, there's just, it seems like it's a, a character that has infinite possibilities, and what makes me very excited is, I remember when DMC 5 came out earlier this year, there were a lot of people on Twitter um, who are big fans of the franchise saying that they think Dante in DMC5 is the best character they've ever seen in a character action game to date. And so if if that's if this is what DMC4 Dante is like, I can only imagine what the next game is. Because like the progression, if you skip 2, because 2 is a weird one, if you go from Devil May Cry 1, 3, 4, the jump up in complexity for Dante is like exponential. So the idea of fuck it, there's another one. Like I'm probably going to take a little bit of a break and do something else before I do Devil May Cry Five because I feel like I don't want to just kind of burn myself out on it. But holy shit, that game is ridiculous and it's so much fun. Nice, that sounds awesome, and I'm very excited to hear your thoughts on Five. Yeah, uh, now that you've played one through four, because if people haven't been following, Five is the new one that came out in like March. Yes. So yeah. Um, that sounds awesome. Yes, yeah. it's very good. I've been playing some games, but we'll talk about that later. Last thing I did want to mention is um, I <clears throat> got into looking more into uh, the Nintendo Switch online voucher system this week. And I wanted to update people on that because we re- <clears throat> excuse me, we reported on that as news a couple weeks ago when Nintendo announced this. Mm-hmm. If you don't remember, it's for the Nintendo Switch, if you are an online member, so that's like their version of PlayStation Plus or Xbox Live Gold, where you pay and you can have online privileges, um, you can now buy this thing in the eShop. It's $99, and it's called Nintendo Switch Online Game Voucher or something like that. But it gives you two vouchers that you can redeem for a select $60 game. So you pay $100 for $120 worth of games, right? Yes, And we were kind of like, that sounds kind of weird at first, because it sounds like kind of a weird Nintendo finicky way to get a discount on games, right? Yeah. Um, But I've been looking into it more, because now, like, they've really started announcing all the games that are supported by it. And it's really impressive, because it's every first-party Nintendo game that's coming out, so everything that has been announced through the end of the year, all the way up to Pokemon Sword and Shield, uh, are, are available with that, so... Mario Maker 2, Fire Emblem Three Houses, Link's Awakening, um, 
Pokemon Sword and Shield. Um, I'm, I think that's most of the big nin- main party Nintendo ones. But they've also got a surprising amount of third party support, like uh, from Square Enix. Dragon Quest Eleven is going to be on it, and Dragon Quest Builders Two. And uh, there were some others as well that I was noticing. Just they've got a lot. Uh, Astral Chain by Platinum Games is on there. Things, anything that's an exclusive. Marvel Ultimate Alliance Three is on there. So I was very impressed by this. It's a lot of stuff. And I decided to do one of these because I had some trade credit. And then Newegg had a 10% off sale on Nintendo eShop credit. So I wound up getting the $99 vouchers for $70 of my own money, which is a pretty good deal because then you're getting two full-price games for $35 a piece digitally, which is really rare. And I redeemed one already for Mario Maker 2, so that's preloaded on my Switch when that comes out. And I'm probably going to redeem the other one for Fire Emblem when that comes out. But I just wanted to point people towards that because it's really, really incredibly rare that you get a discount digitally on new games, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, brand new. I mean, like, you know, a couple months after release you might get something. Like, I bought Sekiro on the PlayStation Store for $45, but that game's been out three or four months, right? Yeah, Sam, I got Resident Evil 2 is on sale right now. The Resident Evil 2 remake on PlayStation yeah. for like 35 bucks or something. I just picked that up to play nice. later. Yeah. yeah, but it's but you there was nowhere where you would get Resident Evil 2 for a discount digitally the day it came out, right? Yeah, no. And so this is a new thing Nintendo is is experimenting with, and honestly, like that's great savings because that means that the Nintendo Switch Online membership has already paid for itself because the membership is twenty dollars. I saved twenty dollars on this, so that's pretty nice already. And if I do more, like if you buy Nintendo Switch games regularly. Most of the big full price releases are on this program. You do have to pay up front the $99, but then it's just there and it sits in your account. Um, they do expire after a year, which is kind of weird, although also I can't imagine you would pay the $99 and then not use it for a year. Yeah, somehow you just completely forgot that you spent 100 bucks. Right, exactly. Um, but I just like, you know, it is a little finicky, it's a little odd, but also Sony does not have anything like this for a discount on new $60 digital games. And Microsoft doesn't, although they have Game Pass, where their first-party games go in on day one, which is nice. So, you know, games are expensive. This is a nice program. If you are a Nintendo Switch Online member, like, and you know you're going to buy at least two games that are on the list, there's kind of no reason not to do it. When you you go into the eShop, it's very easy to do. You just buy it, and then... If you go to buy a game that has the voucher thing with it, it just asks, do you want to use a voucher for this? And you're good. So, like, I was kind of impressed. Um, it is a decent savings, especially now that we're in a world where a couple years ago everybody had those programs where for new physical games you could get 20% off. Amazon yeah. did it. Best Buy did it. Those are all done now. My Best Buy one is expiring in August, and so I've I've pre-ordered games out through, like... May of next year to make sure I get my discount. But since that's going away, I like that someone is doing that on digital games. Because again, games are expensive, especially if you buy a lot of them like we do. And that's nice. And I just wanted to give that a an endorsement because I'm like, hey, I like saving money and I do buy a lot of Switch games. Um, so that's nice. Cool. Yeah. I did, I did my count last night because I was kind of shocked by this. I have 70 games on my Switch. Good lord. Which I think is more than I own on any other platform right now like with playstation it's weird because you have playstation plus yeah so i have like 200 games there but i don't own own them or anything um but yeah anyway uh yeah let's go ahead and move on sean do you want to do some news yeah what's going on in the news jonathan not a ton in the world of video games that's 
non-E3, but I really just, you know, this is very freeform. I wanted to ask Sean, like, what post-E3, not post-E3, but like proper E3, the show itself, there were a lot of journalists there, we heard a lot of stories. Um, What struck you, what kinds of things do you want to follow up on from our conversations in last week's Gargantuan show? Yeah, so the number one thing I would just want to say up top is I want to point people to um, Giant Bomb's E3 night shows that they do um, every year, which to me is the, like, hands-down best um, E3 coverage there is because it's both very entertaining and it's very informative. Um, So Giant Bomb, the website about video games, they do these live streams um, every evening like so they have three of them and the days that the trade show runs where they interview different devs sometimes there are other game journalists on that kind of stuff um different personalities um and jeff gersman who's sort of the main giant bomb like sort of the head of giant bomb he does all the interviews he's amazing at these interviews um and they have a nice informal tone but they get a lot of good info out um, so I would point people to the Giant Bomb YouTube channel. Check out those interviews. Specifically, the Phil Spencer one is always amazing every year. Um, and so there's a, there's a lot of really interesting stuff they talked about with Phil Spencer in terms of like um, Project Scarlet. That's where a lot of outlets after that interview went up uh, just immediately started posting like Xbox Scarlet is not the last console Microsoft is planning to make. And there's a lot of xCloud stuff. Um, they talked about that on that interview. And then the other one I think people should um, seek out is the one with Emma Kanima from Game Workers Unite and Jocelyn Monahan from Riot Games, the developers at uh, that make League of Legends. Um, though that interview is also really good because that is, if you're someone that hears us talk about like video game unionization and developers should unionize and all that kind of stuff, but don't know the ins and outs of that kind of conversation or what you can do to contribute um that interview covers all that material from like a hey i've never heard of unions before like like they answer that question and that kind of stuff and that that's a really cool interview and if you're um interested there's a lot of stuff at game workers unite is an organization that's kind of spearheading that movement to try to um get different um developers to or uh, organize and unionize and that kind of stuff uh, so th- those are two things I want to definitely point people to. Uh, check those out for more detail for for what's going on with video games at E3. The Giant Bomb stuff is always the stuff that I think is the best. Except for the Weekly Stuff podcast. Except for the Weekly Stuff podcast. No, I'm kidding. Yes. They're, they, they, they're doing it every night. They have a whole team. I, so yes. okay, we can seed that ground to them. They don't do as good Mobile Suit gov- Gundam coverage. No, they don't. Yes, no. We, we are your one-stop shop. If you want Mobile Suit Gundam and E3, this is where you want to go this summer. All right. Um, I, on that note, you talked about unionization. I wanted to mention one theme I found very interesting in, in after the shows and the actual E3 like, like floor show everything um, is multiple major developers noted you know, crunch considerations as reasons games were coming out later than expected. So Nintendo said that Animal Crossing New Horizons is a 2020 game now, specifically because they didn't want the Animal Crossing team to have to go through crunch. Uh, They said they probably could have gotten it out this year, but they just didn't want the team to have to work that hard. And then Cyberpunk, the CD Projekt Red developers also said, yes, this is a game, you know, maybe we want it out earlier, but we picked this release window specifically because we don't want the kind of crunch we had on Witcher 3. And I found that interesting because I, as much as this has been a conversation in the video game ether, I have not heard video game developers, particularly E3, get that out ahead and say, our goal is to avoid it and here's why and how. And that was a nice sign that we should hold them to, but I was glad to hear it. Yeah, it's definitely, it's good that like, 
we're in a place where journalists are asking those questions and developers are like starting to actually try to give answers. Like the thing I do want to urge is for people not just to accept those answers at face value. Yes. Like, especially for like, because you know, it's executives. Like I think that the quote for Nintendo came, I know that one specifically came from Doug Bowser, who's the president of Nintendo of America. So it's like, I want like, who is like someone actually like working on the game? Like I wanted to hear more from those people and have them say that shit. than like whoever is the, the, the suits working at Nintendo and CD Projekt Red. But again, like, you know, baby steps in terms of progress. It's nice that it feels like every year we're getting better um, at asking those questions and they are getting in, the developers are getting more committed to giving us answers and hopefully giving movement on actually enacting those things in their studios. Well, because here's what we've at least partially moved past is the phase of the conversation, which is, this is just how video games are made. There's no other way to do it. Like, Mm -hmm. we're not hearing that and that is progress, right? Yes, exactly. So that's it. Just feels good. Yes, and, and yeah, that was a yeah. fun, good conversation that went throughout E3. Um, but, so I want to let's go through some of the games that stood out to us because um, one thing I thought was cool was the Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order um, behind the closed doors demo seemed to really impress yes. journalists. That was something I kept on hearing from um, different sources I went to. Is everyone seems really impressed by that demo, which is cool. Um, because I know there were, while both of us liked the gameplay demo they showed at EA Play, the internet was much more lukewarm on it. Um, huh, because, I didn't notice that, but I yes, I, I wasn't that plugged in this year. Yeah, I think it was mostly a thing of where, because we talked about it where it kind of felt like the like the actual demo was not the most exciting slice of the game, and the person playing seemed to be playing like slowly and like not kind of using all the, the tools available to them in the combat and stuff. And so I think a lot of people looked at that and just kind of tra- extrapolated, oh, this is just all the game is, and if this is, like, top-level combat, then this game is going to suck. And it's like, that's not how gameplay demos work. This is not our first E3, people. Yeah. Like, be a bit more observant than that. And, yeah, all accounts I've heard from behind the closed door, from the behind closed doors demo um, was that the combat looked really exciting. People are really impressed by that game. And so that's cool um, because that's... I just so desperately want a good Star Wars game and specifically a good Star Wars like Jedi action kind of game because it has been a very it's been a long time since we got like a mediocre one of those with the Force Unleashed games so it's been a very long time since like Jedi Academy probably was the last good one of those so it would be nice to have one before we close this decade out we get one really good Star Wars game that would make me super thrilled. (laughs) It would, me too, because I also did not play a lot of Star Wars games as a kid, so I don't have all this experience with it. Like, my favorite Star Wars game is probably still Super Star Wars on the (laughs) SNES, like, and I fucking love that game. But I'm just, yeah, I am very excited for it, especially hearing more from, um, yes, because journalists were very positive about it. Speaking of Star Wars, I've also seen persistently uh, people from behind closed doors demos being impressed by Lego Star Wars. Yes, because it sounds like it's not... Because, you know, as with most of the stuff on the Microsoft show, it's just like, here's like a 45-second long trailer. I don't know what this game is, really, um, kind of thing. And so it wasn't... You know, it definitely seemed like it was a fully new game, but it was hard to be sure. Are they, like, redoing the old first two Star Wars games and doing new ones for the new movies? What are they doing with this? And no, like, it sounds like this is a totally new game from the ground up, not just for Lego Star Wars, but for the Lego video game brand as a whole. It sounds like like they're really changing up the way that those games work. 
Um, and so that sounds exciting. Like, I don't know if it's going to immediately be for me, uh, but it sounds like it's going to be a lot more for me than the past, like, 50 LEGO games or how many of these yes. they've made since LEGO Star Wars 2, which was the last one I cared about. Um, yeah, that was really cool to hear that they're looking... It's Because it's a good time to use this opportunity as we're starting to transition to new consoles and stuff to say, let's just, like, jack this shit up. Let's make it cooler. Let's Let's redo this. Let's not just sort of use the exact same foundation we've been building on literally since the original Xbox, which is, you know, Lego Star Wars was a late original Xbox title. So, yeah, that, that I, I'm with you that that was cool to hear um, that Lego Star Wars might be really good again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I also noted that pretty much everyone who played it loved Final Fantasy VII Remake. Mm-hmm. That's a game that we saw so much of on the Square Enix show that we didn't learn a ton more. But it was notable that people actually played that cool combat system and confirmed, yes, it's cool. And then we also got some interesting just tidbits from behind the scenes. You know, we knew that this first game is Midgar and that Square considers it to be a full game on its own. It's not just, you know, it it is going to be part one of a multi-part series, but it is not just like a little episode or anything. Um, But then I also, I think this was a Jason Schreer interview at Kotaku was talking to the developers and and saying how many parts do they expect this to be and they still don't know because they're still mapping out part two right now and they're going to kind of take it one game at a time and so there's kind of still a big question around Final Fantasy 7 of how many games is it going to be and how long is it going to be before the project is finished you know I saw some people point out that they do have all of the main character assets done from this game they're going to have the combat system down they're going to have a lot of the things that take a long time in development down but i'd also point out that they don't go back to midgar in final <laughs> fantasy 7 like when you're out of midgar it's a whole big world with all sorts of crazy things and like i think the task of the remake only gets harder once you get out of midgard and I am very curious to see how long it's going to take them to make these subsequent games. They, it sounds like they're totally committed to it. I don't worry that it's going to be like another seven years. But I am curious how many games it's going to wind up being. Because three sounds like the right number, you know, kind of when you just off the top of your head. But even the developers aren't quite sure. And that interests me. Yeah, no, it, it is like... It's it's funny that, you know, Final Fantasy VII Remake seemed like it was something that was so far off, and then now all of a sudden it's something that's very near in the future, and yet it is still very mysterious. It's like, it still feels like, okay, yeah, we're going to get this one game, but then what is the rest, how do you do, how do you do the full rest of the, and like, like saves carrying over, like all that kind of stuff are yeah. details I'm curious to see. There's a lot of problems to solve well, because, um, with this format. Because no matter what, Part 2 is a PS5 game. Like, yes, that's, exactly. that's just inevitable. Like, it could be, it'll probably be cross-gen if it's close enough, but still, it'll have to run on the PS5. It'll be, we know the PS5 is backwards compatible, but we don't know the exact details of how that works. So, like, there are a bunch of questions. I will say, though, the upside potential for the Final Fantasy VII Remake is really exciting to me, because we've never really had this in video games, where I see this as kind of like the video game equivalent of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where you have a story on paper that you're setting out to tell over multiple entries and you're putting, you know, a giant budget and all these resources behind it. If they pull it off and they really expand the story in ways that feel really meaningful and and each chapter feels like it has weight and heft and builds on the last one, there's no, I can't really think of the immediate 
comparison to that in video game history because there's a lot of game series that are good but they're made you know you make the first game and then if it does well you then go on and make the second and you know like halo i guess the halo trilogy the story continues but even then they're pretty separate games that are pretty different yeah and it's just usually you don't get like a here's where we're like rebuilding this old game and filling in all the gaps usually it's just here's you know, like like Devil May Cry 4 Special Edition. Here's it's nicer textures, and here's like two new playable characters yeah. and some costumes that weren't in the original release. It's not like, and now we're like looking at this thing um, that was really compressed in terms of its storytelling format because of the time. Let's uncompress it for the standards of a modern JRPG with like 3D characters and voice acting and all that kind of stuff. Like, what does that look like? You're right. Yes. It's it's fairly unprecedented. Because I will also say the downside potential. Is that it's the Hobbit trilogy And what you get is like Each chapter is going to be so stretched the fuck out And like Final Fantasy 7 Part 1 Midgar Is going to be like the Hobbit on Unexpected Journey Where it's you know Way too long and nothing of import happens in the story And like Mm -hmm. you know The bad version of this is going to be the climax of 7 Part 1 Is meeting Red 13 Because that happens near the end of Midgar And like Red 13 is cool That's not the climax of a game right? Yes, and and so, yeah, yeah, it is definitely a lot of those questions of do they restructure things about the plot to make it like to make those episodes more clean and more exciting, that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of problems to solve with Final Fantasy remake in terms of structure, but it seems like they've solved a lot of the problems in terms of like the moment to moment gameplay in a way yeah. that people are very excited about. And again, the the unknowns of it are really exciting to me. Yes, and, and in a way that I am very excited to see how it turns out. So. Yeah, and it gives Square Enix a long time that they can spend figuring out what the fuck does Final Fantasy 16 look like. Yes. Because <laughs> I don't think they have, after Tabata left um, sort of unceremoniously last year, I don't think they have any idea what the fuck they're going to do with Final Fantasy in the future. So remaking no. an old one seems to be a good good strategy for biding their time. I think they should just go ahead and rename Final Fantasy 7 Remake Final Fantasy 16 and just let the series kind of implode upon itself. Yeah, then you, then you Final Fantasy seventeen is just Final Fantasy eight, and it's just you start the cycle again. Yes. All right. Uh, what else, Sean? Um, some stuff I was excited about from from Bethesda. Um, it seems like people, while Wolfenstein Youngblood got kind of a weird showing on their uh, conference for something that's out so soon, um, everybody that played it seemed to really like it and liked the story. They liked the tone. It sounds like they they some changes they made to the gameplay sound cool. Um, so I'm really excited for that now, hearing that people have played it, and it's like, okay, it's good. It's not something that they're trying to just sweep under the rug or something. So that's coming out soon. Um, more importantly is Doom Eternal. Um, everybody that played Doom Eternal is just completely in love with it, and that's... I am so... Like, that's that to me is the game of the show in terms of what I want to play and I'm most excited about and know is going to be good. Like, there's no world in which this game is bad to me. Um, and that's another one where the Giant Bomb uh, guys had the creative director for the game, Hugo Martin, on one of their live streams, and that was a very good interview. And, like, it was fun to see that guy, um, Hugo Martin, if you saw the um, No Clip documentary that they made about Doom, he was in a lot of that. And that is a guy that, like, 100% knows his game and what game he's making and what he wants it to be like top down so there's like no person on the planet that is more insightful about what is good about Doom 2016 and by extension Doom 2 or Doom Eternal than that guy so it's so much fun to hear him talk about the game and how excited he is about it and all the cool shit like 
the way they've changed it up where they've added in more different layers of that kind of resource um, mechanic where um, I think you, you could see in the gameplay demo where he has a like shoulder-mounted flamethrower thing that can set people on fire or demons on fire. And if you set demons on fire and you then kill them, they drop armor pickups that you then can pick up to get your armor um, back. So they're like adding more layers to that resource game that Doom 2016 had of... In Doom 2016, it was just if you, you know, glory kill a demon with that, like, special melee execution, they give you more health, which was, like, the key mechanic that put that whole game together. And then also you had the chainsaw, which would give you more ammo back. And they're adding in more different kinds of mechanics to make that more specific um, so that you're constantly kind of, like, chewing through these different resources while you're moving through a combat encounter trying to figure out, like, how am I going to survive this? Like, what do I need to do next to get what I need so that I can kill more demons even better? Um, the other thing he said on Giant Bomb, which I think this is the only place where this has come out, was um, so they talked a little bit about the verticality and some of that platforming stuff in the levels being more elaborate. But they also talked about how they're changing up some of the secrets. And one thing that sounded really cool is they've added a new different category of secret uh, for Doom Eternal, which are these like special hidden um, demon encounters that you have like these different pips you're filling up and i like the way that hugo martin described it as like you're basically you know one way you think of it is the doom slayer is an exterminator for demons and so you want to kill every single demon in the level so we've hidden in extra little like hidden challenge bonus like combat rooms that you can that will be on your map and you can go seek them out and you have to do some tricks to go find them and then once you find them instead of it just being a little doom doll or whatever instead it's like here's this like big crazy fight you get to have and then once you finish that you get resources that you can use to upgrade your guns and armor and stuff um so that sounded like them talking about how they're expanding out that kind of player progression in the hidden secrets on the map reminded me how good that part of doom 2016 was also so like it just reminded me of all the areas that doom eternal has to improve on the original and i'm just super fucking excited for that game me too i like what you said about hugh martin being like so confident about what the game he's making is because i don't know if i've ever played a game that knew and loved what it was more than Doom 2016 knew mm-hmm. and loved what it was and everything you just said makes me more excited for Doom Eternal because it sounds like they are going to make it even better I like the whole thing with like getting armor back because the way that game rewards aggression is so fascinating to me and so invigorating and fun um, man can't can't fucking wait yeah yeah I'm definitely going to have to play through Doom 2016 in the near future I just, yes. I just feel I just need it so I'll play and that I, game again I fucking I think you did too I platinumed that game I played mm-hmm. it twice in a row but yes I would play it again in a heartbeat it's so good yes. uh, we should also mention we're talking about a bunch of demos and games people saw that people loved should we mention that Avengers made everybody sad Yep, no, it's it was very funny hearing like because that was one of the things that when the show floor opened up proper on Tuesday it sounded like a lot of game journalists like one person from every single staff was like we have to find out this is the the number one story of E3 immediately was what the fuck is this Avengers game actually and it seems like we still kind of don't know because yeah. it sounds like the behind closed doors demo like it shed more light on like the third person character action bit of it like they saw someone playing the game um, but it still seems like a lot of the stuff of it being a games as a service and all that kind of stuff, and even just the quality of what they saw in terms of the combat seems very um, mixed yeah. to bad. Uh, it's 
it it feels like an anthem scenario again. It feels like this is a game that like nominally has been in development for like six years or something, but has actually been in development for like eighteen months. Yes, and with the added awkwardness of Anthem was not based on a movie franchise where they couldn't use the exact likenesses of the famous actors, uh-huh. but they decided to hew as close as humanly possible without infringing on that, which is still the weirdest creative decision I've ever heard of. And it sounds like all the journalists who got to play the game were not swayed by actually seeing it in motion, you know? Like, they were mm-hmm. all like, yeah, this looks creepy. That doesn't. That looks like Chris Hemsworth's... You know, unsuccessful brother. And I don't mean Liam. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be mean to Liam. But, like, the other brother you haven't heard of who, like, does porn in Australia, you know? Yeah. And, like, he's Thor. Yeah. So, I don't know. I I feel I feel bad, like, ragging on that game so much. But, like, it looks bad. So Yeah. It's one of the worst showings of, like, a highly anticipated game at E3 in, like, recent memory. Like, it's yeah. just... It's very weird, and it's it, it's it's like upsetting in some ways, like how how bad that game has kind of come out. Yeah. Um, Especially because yeah. like the new Marvel Games Initiative after Spider Man on PS4 seemed so promising. Yeah. But I feel like in retrospect, that's more of a Sony is really good at like getting first getting good results out of first parties. Yeah. And, and their games. And Insomniac is a brilliant developer at that kind of thing, you know? Like, and Crystal Dynamics is a really talented developer, no doubt about that. But, like, I feel like without the hand of a Sony or someone who, like, will give the space and time and money to really let it be what it needs to be, I... Who knows? Who knows? With yeah, game. I mean, if you want to talk about a publisher that has, like, in recent memory, mishandled a lot of big yes. projects, especially from their Western side, it's Square Enix. So, yes. yeah, that's... Upsetting. Like one thing, I just remembered a detail that came out um, at E3 that was very confusing, and this is what I mean. Of like, it still feels like we don't really know what that game is. Is apparently the whole not everything in the game is playable co-op. So it sounds like there's like a narrative so single weird. player, a narrative single player campaign, and then maybe after you finish that campaign is then when you unlock the games as a servicey component of it where you get to play as whatever hero you want and go on co-op style missions but it just sounded so just like what the fuck are you doing like why would you not like i get if like maybe if you have like a mission that you're like oh this is an iron man mission but then just have like a bunch of people play as iron man like nobody gives a fuck like nobody gives a fuck that you can play as like two master chiefs in the halo mode kill co-op it doesn't make any sense and the other one just disappears for all the cutscenes. but people want to play their fucking video game together if your game is already designed to work with co-op stuff why would you not then have everything work with co-op because people want to play your game fucking co-op if it's going to be a co-op game it's very confusing that would be like Destiny cutting off co-op for campaign missions because, like, no, one Guardian at a time. Like, no, you can have as many fucking Guardians in there as you want. Yeah, just like, yeah, there's almost nothing in Destiny that's not co-op. I think there's just, like, those the special missions that were, like, you unlocking your new class. Right. And, like, the first mission in the game. I think those are the only things that you could do in Destiny that was not, you just, like, bring everyone. Like, yeah, fuck it. Like, let's just go. Let's just go do whatever. That's weird. Um... On lighter pastures, I did not watch a ton of the Nintendo Treehouse stuff because, frankly, it's for a bunch of games I'm already excited for and I just kind of want to play them. Yeah. But I did look through the streams of a couple of them. Link's Awakening looks unbelievably good. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's already, like, the bones of that game. 
again, there's not going to be a better game on the market this year for $60 than, than Link's Awakening, just based on the bones of that game. It's one of the best games ever made. But, like, it is such a gorgeous remake. It looks so cool. I'm sold on the graphics more every time I sit down to watch it. But more than anything, just what I wanted to mention from the Treehouse stream is you've got a good listen to the music. And the music in that remake is out of this world. It sounds like it's all done with, like, a small chamber group. So, like, you know, a, a, a soloist for each part, and they all play together. And it sounds like it was recorded live, and it's just... It's really, really lovely, and Link's Awakening already has great music, but, like, keeping it kind of like a, a small little chamber orchestra playing the music sounds really cool to me. I love that. Fire Emblem Three Houses looks crazy ambitious to me in all sorts of ways, including, like, it, it looks like it's not recreating the social aspects of Awakening and If, uh, Fates, which I think is good to me because... It was really cool in Awakening, the whole romance and child system, but then it was very awkward in Fates. Um, but they've replaced it with all this stuff with, like, Fire Emblem Three Houses is you are in charge of, like, this class of fighters. Um, like, it's kind of a school kind of thing. Um, you know, it's the Yu-Gi-Oh! GX of Fire Emblem. <laughs> Not Great. really. Yeah. Although, that'd be cool, too. Uh, but anyway, come on and get your game on. But, uh, no, but, like, there's a bunch of stuff with the characters, like, like how you have to, like, reward your students and all these things. That looked neat. And then the battlefield scenes were really cool. That all looked amazing. Uh, and then, finally, they did do a big stream for Dragon Quest XI-S, and most of the stuff in there we already knew about. But I did want to say, I really love that your party members now follow you on the field. That looked oh, really nice. fun. Um, so, like, you can run around with all your party or at least who's in your fighting party, because I don't think they render, like, all eight characters on screen Yeah, that would be a bit more, like, this fucking Congo line just going yes. through the planes, yeah. Um, that'd be great if you could have Silvando just leading the Congo line as you go around the battlefield, but, mm. yeah, so you have that. And then I also noticed, I was wondering how the whole toggle to 2D mode, the uh, Super NES graphics, works. And what you do is you have to go to the church and talk to the priest and say, I want to play in 2D. And there's a whole dialogue about, like, you get to see the world from a new point of view if you clasp your hands and pray. You know, so, like, I love that, again, everything in Dragon Quest gets narrativized in such wonderful, weird ways. And I love it. That remake looks unbelievably good. It, it looks like the most ambitious, like, re-release of a game since Persona 4 Golden. Mm-hmm. So... I'm very excited for that. But, uh, yeah, every, everything at Nintendo Treehouse looked good. I like that those are just very easy to find. You go to Nintendo's YouTube, and if you want to watch 30 minutes of pretty much any game they have coming out, they're there. And I should also say, people loved that Luigi's Mansion demo. Yes, uh, who got yeah, to play that's one I heard on. a lot. Yeah, the Luigi's yes. Mansion 3 people are hot on that game. And it looks very good. Uh, I will, I'm going to have to go back and play Dark Moon, which was the 3DS sequel, because this is the same developer... And people have been saying, like, that game is underrated. Like, it's a really good 3DS game. And it sounds like they're really getting to kind of cut loose now that they're doing it on the Switch and not the 3DS. So, very, very exciting. I, I think we're seeing the fruits of Nintendo not developing for multiple systems, you know? Like, it's uh -huh. all one place. It's all Switch. And, it one, it just means that there's a lot of games coming out. But that everyone has more tools than ever to make those games. And that's really cool. Um 
so yeah, you've got all these games. And then on top of that, Mario Maker 2 is in two weeks. That looks great. And I should also say, uh, the, the game Cadence of Hyrule, which is the, uh, legend, which is the Crypt of the Necro Dancer yeah. game for Zelda, that came out this week. I got it. I've only played about half an hour. It is super cool. And I can't wait to play more of it. I've just been doing other things. So I will definitely talk about that more on the show next week. But it is getting rave reviews as well. And I really like Nintendo's... Like, every year Nintendo do- drops something the week of E3 for everybody to play and it seems like a pretty successful strategy because it gets a lot of hype but yes I'm excited to play more of that so that's all the Nintendo stuff I saw cool um I did see there's like there seems to be a lot of chatter about the Pokemon stuff where because their news came out this week there's there's a couple things I think the main thing was that not every Pokemon is going to be in Pokemon Sword and Shield it's going to be a select number of the Pokemon available and and that's sort of like it's sort of I think it, it's particularly stuck out to people because they just had that Pokemon Home announcement thing on that direct, which was hey we're yes. use this big like cloud bank or whatever you can put all your Pokemon in it. It's like you know the link cable of the future. It's putting it in the cloud and you can right. transfer your Pokemon to new games. Um, but yes, not all five billion or whatever it is Pokemon well, are going to be in the next one. Because that's the thing. One, yeah. I don't think every Pokemon has been in the recent games. Because we're at, they, they announced with Sword and Shield, they are over a thousand Pokemon. God. And Sword and Shield is the most ambitious, like, 3D HD Pokemon game. Are you going to go do the work to model all thousand Pokemon? Like, that's, because people are really up in arms about it. But, like, of course not. I didn't expect every Pokemon to be in it. So, like, it didn't make me angry at all. I kind of get it, I guess. But also, like... I did not expect this game to have over a thousand Pokemon. Like, you've seen the trailers. They're very detailed animations on the Pokemon this time around. And it's just, it's this, it's the difficulty with Pokemon where each game, you have better graphics and more you can do with the Pokemon, but you also have more Pokemon than ever before. What do you do? And it's going to be tough. It's going to be a trade-off. I think... Probably picking the best Pokemon from each generation and putting them in there is the best thing. Because, like, what I want more than anything is cool new Pokemon, which it looks like this game has a lot of. There's there's a lot of the new Pokemon they've they've shown off look really cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I get why people are upset, I guess, but also... Just the realities of video game development, that would be a lot of work to do over a thousand Pokemon in this thing. No, yeah, I'm totally with you in terms of, like, I just feel like... Like, I almost feel like they should probably be more... They need At some point, they're going to have to be really aggressive and just say, fuck it. Like, they're going to have to cut a bunch of Pokemon at some point from new games just so that, like, they can, they can push it forward and do new things. Because that's one of the things that makes it... Because it's not just like, oh, here's all the animation work and all the modeling work. Because then it's like... And then there's going to be all the balancing for all the weirdos that, like, the competitive Pokemon stuff. And... and like there's all the does, types and movesets. And, yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of things. that So, like, you know, if they ever wanted to, heaven forbid, make some sort of bold, ridiculous choice, like giving Pokemon five whole moves instead of four whole moves, if you have to support a thousand Pokemon, that is a change that is absurd in terms of the, the, the enormity of what you need to account for um, for something like that. And, yeah, like, honestly, it's the thing that I would have wanted for their first, like, HD like on a console Pokemon game would be like let's 
make the hard cuts, let's like really kind of do a soft relaunch of Pokemon or something, would have personally gotten, as someone who's a lapsed Pokemon fan, would have gotten me more interested in it. And hearing them say like, you know, we're still like, yeah, we need to cut some of the Pokemon guys. Like, do you, I, I don't know, if Zigzagoon might be in the game. I'm just saying, do you really want a fucking Zigzagoon? Is, no. is anyone out here excited to catch a Zigzagoon in Pokemon Sword and Shield? No, because they fucking suck. It's, get rid of it. And also, like, guys, they're not coming to your house and taking your copy of Pokemon Black or whatever you're, you love and, like, destroying it. You can still go play with those other Pokemon in other Pokemon games. Like, it is, it is a 20-year-plus franchise now across Game Boy, Game Boy Color, Game Boy Advance, Nintendo DS, Nintendo 3DS, and Nintendo Switch. Six platforms. You can't humanly do Pokemon from platform in the 90s to platform in the 2020s and like have that work right like yeah. there's there's got to be a cutoff um i i get it but also because they've also said it's still going to be one of the biggest pokedexes they've ever had in a pokemon game it's just not a thousand pokemon in the pokemon game so and who knows you know they could do dlc at some point they could add some in i guess if they really feel like fans would would want it but i also i guess i would ask this if they put out the DLC where they added in like the 500 missing Pokemon, would you really go catch them all? Is that would you? Would you really? I mean, because they're well, doing the work. You have to promise to do it. Presumably, you wouldn't even be able to catch them. It would just because like you're not going to yeah. fill an area with like the dregs of the Pokemon that nobody <laughs> wants. Like here's the ice cream one. Here's Zigzagoon. Here's the one that looks like some keys. Here's the one that's literal garbage. Like here's all the Pokemon nobody wants. Here's Jinx. Like, but like, here's like, actually, no. Now all of a sudden, I'm convincing myself on the Pokemon DLC that's like the Island of Misfit Pokemon, <laughs> where you go and, and this is just all the Pokemon that nobody wants anymore. And that's the only Pokemon you can you, catch. You go in someone's basement and it's all the different Rattatad knockoffs. Yes, it's just like so. Yeah, so th- there's something funny about that idea that makes me actually want them to do it. But no, like it would just be a thing of like, oh, now I have my, I'm a. You know, I'm a Pokemon super mega fan that has level 99 of literally every fucking Pokemon in my Pokemon home. So I can, I could technically have it in my level 99 Zigzagoon in Sword and Shield. And I feel like now that I'm thinking about it, maybe the reason why they did that Pokemon home thing was just so they can be like, you have that Pokemon. It's fine. You have your shit fucking Z tier level Pokemon nobody likes. Because, like, even people who love Pokemon know there's a couple hundred Pokemon that nobody gives a shit about at this point. It's like, you can have it. It's in your Pokemon home. You caught that thing. It's up there. You have your universal Pokedex that encompasses all these Pokemon games. Please don't make us have to, like, animate fucking Jinx using Hyper Beam or some horse shit in our new game. Like, we just don't want to do that. Um, yeah. Other stuff that they didn't want to do. Apparently, they heard the news and uh, that uh, Mega Evolutions in Z-Moves were lame. They, they heard what I was saying, so they cut those from the new game. So those, oh, I like they had no Mega Evolutions because they're dumb. Z moves are very dumb, and I will agree on that. I do like the Mega Evolutions, but they're in Let's Go, so I'm fine with that. Um, yeah, any other Pokemon? Like I said, it looks good. I don't really have any more than what we saw last week. Yeah, um, I just heard a lot of that chatter once the news about that the yeah cut Pokemon thing came out, which I agree with these you people are being silly about that. Um, we did get some like soft confirmation. Obviously, they're not talking in specific details. Because they probably don't know some of the specific details. But for Breath of the Wild 2, it sounds like that is going to take place effectively in Hyrule from Breath of the Wild 1. It's At the very least, it's not going to be a Majora's Mask, like you're in Termina kind of situation. 
obviously they're going to add things and change things in that map, but it will be that map, which is something that we were asking <laughs> that is, uh, after that trailer. That is, st- I, I looked at the interview with Aonuma several times. It's not that firm in what he says. Mm-hmm. It's not that cut and dry. I should look it up. Let me look it up because I think that is probably the safe assumption that the base of this game is the existing Hyrule, but he said something more to the effect of... Like, I wanted to go back to that world, but that, I just, all I'm saying is that could mean a lot of different things. I agree it's probably not going to be, like, an entirely new Breath of the Wild map, but I just would be careful. Like, people are writing a lot of news stories out of a very small quote. Here's what he said. He said he wanted to revisit this Hyrule again for the Breath of the Wild sequel. That quote... I don't think that's enough to draw as firm a conclusion on as lots of people are saying. Is that a fair thing to say, Sean? Sure. Like, I I would still hedge my bet that that does mean, like, that sure. like, literal, high, like, that physical space. Not but people like, are treating it like Nintendo yeah. has confirmed this, and that is not at all what has happened. Yes. I th- we should probably put it somewhere next to the bucket of people... Are also looking at the. Like, I think you know. I think you are also one of these people, Jonathan. Looked at that one interview on Kotaku or with the Zelda thing, and are like, "Oh, that looks like he's probably going. You're probably going to be able to do some Zelda stuff." You're not. No, that's not. Well, happening. we don't know that. He that that's, sounded that's, like that's he not. just couldn't say it. But anyway, um, I yeah, they, that's that's a Japanese thing though. Of like, they're sure. Either way, they're not going to say it. But the, come on, like that they, people. Remember when the Breath of the Wild trailer, the original one, came out, and people were like, "Oh, can you play as a girl Link? That's a Link with longer hair. Can you play as a girl Link?" And then they're like, "Yeah." And then it's like the game comes out. It's like, "No, of course you fucking can." Fair enough. Here's his full quote. Um, this was speaking to Game Informer. One of the reasons we wanted to create a continuation was because I wanted to revisit that Hyrule again and use that world again while incorporating new gameplay and new story. So, okay, the phrase "use that world again." Fairly clear, but again, like it could mean a lot of different things. Like, he I really want to hear, I really want to, I wish they just would put like the Japanese text in those kinds of interviews. Yeah. Um, just so like I could look at like what are the actual words he's saying because, because in Japanese it probably would be slightly more clear whether he's talking about like the set, the story setting of quote unquote world yes. or he's talking about the physical geography world because those are. In English, we use both of the same things, words for that. In Japanese, you don't quite. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll just say they've been working on this game for a couple of years now, since the end of 2017 when they finished up DLC. They've got at least another year of development. You know, I think people, like, it's not just going to be you're dropped into the exact same map and everything's in the same place and you go play. Like, I, I think there'll be a lot. He even said, like, he does think of it as somewhat Majora's Mask-esque. He says it's going to be darker, kind of in the way Majora's Mask is darker. Um, he did make a joke about how you will not need an expansion pack for this one because Majora's Mask on N64, remember you had to use the expansion pack? Um, oh my god, they should release a version of this game on the Wii U that comes with an expansion pack for the Wii U. Like, they should just do that. I have already seen some people, though, joking that we need to petition them to put it on Wii U so that hackers can get it online with uh-huh. the Wii U emulator. Because Breath of the Wild 1, a lot of people play on PC at, like, 4K 60 FPS based on the Wii U emulator. And a lot of people are snobs and don't want to have to go back down to 30 FPS. So, you know, I get it. I, I played Breath of the Wild on the Wii U. It didn't run super great. I get it. 
All right. So um, one other thing from E3 I just wanted to mention is we started out the top of the show. We mentioned cyberpunk in the context of uh, the crunch stuff. There was also a very unfortunate controversy this week where so where they they in one of the pictures they released from cyberpunk people noticed there was an advertise a fake advertisement on a poster in the back of like one of the areas of cyberpunk that showed a a woman a female presenting person with a very large phallus so some kind of trans person that they have illustrated with the line on the the like the 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 ad copy was like switch it up or something like that and obviously sounded fairly insensitive to the trans community and i think part of why this raised red flags is that whoever the fuck runs gog's uh twitter account yeah. which gog is run by cd project red really loves making terrible transphobic jokes and they have done it and then apologized and done it and then apologized several times and it's really fucked up and so there was a whole conversation about this the lead artist on cyberpunk did a pretty frank interview about it with several outlets and like went into it in a lot more detail than i think you would get and their logic was basically like we're not trying to be anti-trans we were trying to say like this is a way that in the world of cyberpunk you know the corporate world has like taken ownership of these ideas and we were trying to make it satirical and all of this i think it's a situation where you would probably need to play the full game and see kind of what the world of the game is like before passing full judgment but it definitely raised eyebrows because of that company's past of let's just say not being fully sensitive to the transgender community um and i think raised you know it was definitely worthy of an eyebrow raise if nothing else yeah it's definitely with that kind of stuff i always err on the like i want to see what all that stuff means in the full context because it is that thing where the representation of something is not the endorsement of something right exactly so, like if the whole thing of the game is our lives are run by mega corporations which is not just the thing of the game it's the thing of our life and they use these advertisements where where those corporations are fetishizing transness to advertise their product that is not necessarily the same thing as cyberpunk 2077 the game trying to fetishize transness um for for their product and so you like i'm i want to see how that stuff works out in the full game um yeah but the all the stuff with the the different um community like manager twitter account kind of stuff um has just been really fucking frustrating especially because i feel like when you get interviews with the members of like the actual development team like the woman who made that poster they're much they're like very thoughtful and considerate yes. about those issues which if you played witcher 3 while well, witcher 3 doesn't have anything about um, transgender stuff in it like the the issues it does talk about are like it, there's such a gentle humanity to that game um that i i err on like i'm still excited to see what that team can do tackling the kind of subject matter that this game looks like it's tackling because i think the people actually making the game get it the fuckhead in fuckstick running the twitter account does not yes and yeah i think if it weren't for all of the gog insensitivity I would have found that ad that's in the game slightly intriguing if for no other reason that we're recording this in the midst of Pride Month mm-hmm. and we're inundated with corporations making a horrible advertisements around Pride that are like sometimes really insulting, um, especially if you know that corporation is being double-faced about it and that their actual actions are not, you know, any good. Probably the, the worst example of this so far is the fucking Trump administration selling pride MAGA hats, mm-hmm. which is like fucking Nazis selling menorahs. I mean, it's yeah. so fucked up, I can't even believe it. But, like, 
it's it's not that ridiculous when you look at it through that lens. But I also 100% see why, you know, if you are a trans gamer, you might look at that and say, I don't know if I trust these people 100% on that. And I think that is a 100% valid response. No, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I am intrigued. I, I want to hear more. I would recommend you go read those interviews with the lead artist because they are, if nothing else, an interesting, thoughtful um look at like video game art and a lot of that kind of asset creation and and how they're thinking about it but it was an interesting controversy that flared up this week yeah like one thing that was interesting about it is because it's you know something that is tackling like this very controversial topics it gets so much attention that like i feel like you just didn't usually think about the amount of care and thought and work that goes into something so small as here's this one fake video game like in world video game advertisement poster and this, like, lady has had to go through this whole thought process and everything to create it. And it's like, that game must be filled with thousands of those kinds of things. Um, and that was something that, like, I just thought, it's like, oh, my God. Like, right. Like, we're thinking about this one because of the subject matter it's presenting. But it just, like, it, I think, in, like, because I've been reading that in conjunction also with, like, the talk about all the crunch stuff. It's like, fucking right. There's so much work has to go into something. Like, someone or a small group of people have to put so much work into creating that small representation and we never think about it until something like this happens exactly all right um and also about cyberpunk they did confirm keanu reeves is a main character in the game and in fact has the second most dialogue in the game and yeah i just pre-ordered a second copy of cyberpunk i am pre-ordering a third just because i read that sentence again um you know i'm do i need three copies obviously not but keanu reeves is a main character he did like three weeks of voice acting for this game I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, he... So, because when Cyberpunk 2077... Last year, when that demo stuff came out with E3 and I got very excited about the game, I went on, like, a big, like, internet wiki binge about Cyberpunk 2020, the tabletop game that, that 2077 is based on. Um, so he's playing as... He's playing a character named Johnny Silverhand, who is from that tabletop game, who oh. presumably is killed in the, like events like in that timeline and so i think the character we get in 2077 is some sort of like he has transferred his consciousness to in a chip or something and that's how he's communicating to the player but johnny silverhand is like an ex-military rock star anarchist who's through the whole mission he's like literally in a the head of a rock band who runs a gang that whose whole thing was he wanted to like destroy the corporations and that that's is, every role keanu reeves has ever played put in a blender yeah. it's bill and ted it's the matrix it's john wick it's all of them in a blender yeah. that's it's amazing. so good and then johnny silverhand because he has if you can see it in the trailer like half of one of his arms is replaced with this silver uh like cybernetic prosthetic Johnny Silverhand is, like, top five fucking cyberpunk character names ever. And, like, the number one one to be played by Keanu Reeves. Johnny Silverhand is so cool and good. And, yeah, that... All that... Yeah, realizing that this is not just some, like, small celebrity. Like, you know, like, Charles Dance is in Witcher 3. He plays the Emperor of Nilfgaard. But he's only in, like, two scenes in that game. So it makes sense. Like, yeah, cool. Charles Dance... He basically just plays Tywin Lannister in this game. It's a cool voice. Like, I know that now that he's just playing that character. Um, But he's only in it. Like, he probably had two VO sessions. Right. It's like Keanu Reeves is one of the major characters in this game. That's fucking awesome. Yes. I. That's more than honestly anything else makes me so excited for this game. 
Uh, and there's a lot of other stuff to be excited for. Yes. Anything else from E3 before we wrap up this session? Um, one other thing real quick is Watch Dogs 3 sounds really good. Um, yep. People who played the... Or, yeah, because I think they got hands-on behind-the-scenes time. Um, really were impressed by Watch Dogs 3, and it sounds like... You know, I after Watch Dogs one, I wouldn't have thought that they would get me interested in Watch Dogs, and then now it's like fucking okay, sure. This weird like procedural fucking like game where you can recruit anybody and do all this wacky shit. Um, it sounds really cool. It sounds like they're committed to really pushing that concept to its like extreme, and so it sounds like it's a much more experimental. Um, ambitious kind of game that's trying to do things with like game systems that are very rarely done at all and are even more rarely done well so I'm really like this is the kind of game that it feels like an indie studio would go bankrupt trying to make a much smaller version of this game Um, so thinking that like this is Ubisoft one of the biggest publishers in the world giving um, you know their premier franchise to a team that is doing this with it and getting those kinds of resources giving a premier franchise it's not okay yes yeah it's it's not what was to have been their premier franchise the theoretical successor to Assassin's Creed yes that didn't fully work out you know, um, it's just we, yes. we thought Watch Dogs was going to be the big franchise of this generation. We just had to wait until the opposite end of the generation for the good one to come out, it looks like. Yes. And hey, it's and not we'll Tom Clancy's Watch Dogs, and that makes me happy because every other fucking thing Ubisoft had to show is Tom Clancy something uh-huh. or other, except for Splinter Cell, the only Tom Clancy game I want. So I can't that's wait still for Tom life. Clancy's Assassin's Creed. <laughs> yes. Where it's just, it's, it's just a Jack Ryan game, basically. You know, Jack Ryan kills people, you know. Eventually, Assassin's Creed will be old enough that setting the game in, like, the 90s will be a historical setting um, where you can do that and have the assassin be, like, a CIA dude in the Middle East. Oh, boy. Yes, that's our dark future. I do not trust those French Canadians to get that one right. <laughs> Neither do I. I. No offense to any French Canadians listening. You're lovely. Just some of your game developers don't fully understand American geopolitics. <laughs> yes, as evidenced by you setting Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Wildlands in actual fucking Colombia, or no, sorry, Bolivia, and starting a like minor international incident. Um, great, good job, guys. All right, you ready to move on, Sean? Uh, yeah, let's move on. Our next segment is what I like to fondly refer to as video game therapy. Yes. What I want you to imagine. Is, is I am the patient for this session. I am reclined on a leather couch. Sean is sitting in a chair. He has one leg over the other. He is smoking a pipe. He looks a lot like Sigmund Freud in this scenario. He's got a long white beard. Uh, and he is writing on a little pad. And he is going to listen to me talk about my experiences with Sekiro. And possibly my parents. You know, if this <laughs> gets deep enough. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's going to, you're going to start talking about dreams, um, phalluses are going to come up somehow, it's going to be a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Sean, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice, yes. a new game from From Software, came out, like, what, March of this year? Yes, March. And you played it around the time it came out and loved it, still yes, love best it. Game, yes, best game of the year so far, as far as I'm concerned. I played it through, it's like Doom 2016, I played it, and then I immediately played it through again. Yes. And I have been excited to play it. I wound up playing Dark Souls uh, on my Switch and got really into that. Loved it. Beat that game. Played 80 fucking hours of that game in like two weeks because I was obsessed with it. And I wanted to play another FromSoft game. So I jumped ahead to Sekiro because it's more of the moment. And I have played it for about a week now. 
um, because I would have gotten it Monday night, so like mid E3. Um, yeah, you talked about it very briefly at the beginning uh, yes. of last week's podcast. Yeah, I did. And I, I had played like two, three hours of it. I was very positive on it. And I still, this is what I want to stress at the outset. This is a really cool game that is amazingly well made. The production values are incredible. The story and setting are incredible. I love the characters. I love exploring the world. All of that. I love the basic gameplay and the systems. Like, this is not me complaining that the game is bad. I want to really stress that. But what I am, and why we need to do video game therapy here, is that I don't know if I can physically play this game. I think it's too hard for me. And I've never really said that about a game I've gotten this deep into. Because I've played a lot of hard games in my life. Like this year, I've been on a run where I did Rondo of Blood. I beat that. I did uh, Dark Souls. I did Cuphead. A lot of really hard games in a row. You know, in the past, like I've played all the Donkey Kong Country games. Those are probably some of the harder platformers you can get. Shovel Knight. I'm just thinking of like hardish games that I really love. Um, Halo Reach on Legendary is still one of my favorite things I've ever done in a video game, you know? That's probably Mm -hmm. my favorite Xbox achievement I have because Halo Reach solo on Legendary was a fucking bitch. There's that button you have to hit. Mm -hmm. And if you've played that game, you know what I mean by the button. But anyway, but I've never gotten to this point where I just, I don't think I can play it. Um, I am at, so let me describe where I am in the game. I have gotten up to Genichiro the second time, because at the very beginning you fight him and he cuts your arm off. That's yeah, like the, so you're at the boss fight at Ash, uh, on the top of Ashina Castle with Genichiro. Yes, yes. Because so, the first stretch of the game is, like, there's the, the prologue section where you try to rescue Lord Kuro and you get your arm cut off by Genichiro and then you have to start again and you go through the Ashina outskirts to the castle gate to the castle and you climb up. And that's, like, the first big thing you do in the game. And then on the side you have the Hirata estate thing, which is a memory that you can go do. Um... And I have done, I'm pretty sure, everything I can do in the game other than fight Genichiro. Like, I don't think I can progress in the game any further where I am right now or do anything else without fighting him. And you so, can correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, so but... so you all, so what you have done is you have both gotten to the end of the Hirata estate section, right? I remember you saying on Twitter you had beaten Lady Butterfly, right? I did, so I did everything yeah. there. So you finished that, um, and then you have gotten to the top of Ashina Castle. Yes, Okay, so there are other places you can go. Um, there are, if you explore the castle more, um, there are, I think, three different locations you can go to that the game specifically points you towards after you beat Genichiro, but you can go there and start making progress in those areas as well before you fight him. Okay. So there, there is stuff you can do to progress without necessarily beating Genichiro yet. Okay, because this game is much more linear than, like, Dark Souls. It is at the beginning. Like, the way okay. it's structured is, is as we've been talking about, you have that main path to get to the top of Ashina Castle, um, and then there's that one spoke that goes off to the Hirata stuff. That is technically, the Hirata stuff, I think, is option. Like, you don't actually have to no, finish you... that. Like, you get what you get for beating Lady Butterfly in terms of another resurrection. Everyone should get, because it's very useful. Um, but, although you can't spin that until you beat Genichiro, I think, because you need to talk to Kudo. Um, and then you, but then the main path is you go up to the top of Ashina Castle. After you beat Genichiro, um, you talk to Kudo and get kind of the second phase of the game, which kind of like the second phase of Dark Souls points you off. And there's like a bunch of different areas you can go to in whatever order you want to get different items. And then it comes together again for the last couple of areas. So it has a similar structure to Dark Souls. I think just like the opening section is like the more linear opening section is a little bit longer 
than with Dark Souls, where it kind of gives you the two paths early on you can go to um, before okay. you go to Honor Londo. But yeah, that's okay. that's basically the structure of the game. Yeah, because... So let me describe... So, so that's where I'm at with the game right now. And I've played a lot of it. This is not like I've played three hours of the game and decided I'm having trouble with it. I've pl- I played... Like, I don't... There's no play clock on the game that I'm aware of. But I would guess, like, 20 hours. Like, I put in a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And I have so many of the upgrades. I've done so much grinding to, like, help me get through parts. Because what I started to realize... Like, I like the basic combat system. Like, and especially when you have, like, the areas that are kind of like Predator maps in Batman. Where you have, like, a big kind of circular area. And a lot of enemies. And you have a lot of different means of, of going at them. All that's really cool. And I, you know, I think the basic system where you've got your sword. And you've got your vitality. And your posture. And you want to break enemies' posture. And do the cool moves. That's all when you get it down is really neat. But I started realizing early on that when I would fight basically the mini bosses, because so far there haven't been a lot of full bosses. I think I've fought the dude on the horse, yeah, um, Lady, Lady Butterfly, Butterfly, and that's it. That's yeah. and, then and, then, and then you're stuck at Ginichiro. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Um, but there's a ton of mini bosses. Like the one that really kicked my ass early on was the big uh, ogre guy who you fight pretty early on, and he's on the steps, and you have to, to fight okay, him, yeah. and he, yeah, slams you all around, and he can basically kill you in one hit, so you have to be, like, really careful. Um, and I just started realizing, because I'm throwing myself at these mini-bosses, and I was having so much more trouble with them than I had at any point in Dark Souls, or, like, the last hard game I played before that, like Cuphead, which is less relevant, but I'm just saying, like, when I would throw myself against a boss, and I also, I was not feeling that feeling I was getting in Dark Souls, and again, Dark Souls post-Bell Gargoyles when I figured out the game. Yeah. But, like, that feeling in Dark Souls, you know, when when you would run up against a boss and it wouldn't work, I, I didn't, I would get frustrated sometimes, I guess, but it wasn't this frustration of, like, I genuinely don't know what to do. It would be like, let's go figure out what to do, and I would have a lot of fun with that and figuring out new ways around it. Um Sekiro is not that kind of game. It is not an RPG. You're not leveling. You have skill points to spend, but you're not leveling up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's primarily just you have to get better at using the skills that are given to you. And what's in front of you is in front of you. And with mini bosses, there are things you can do. Like you can get um, an initial um, death blow in with stealth usually to like have their HP before the fight begins, but otherwise, like, you have to fight them. There's not a lot of cheese methods around things. And this is not criticism. I'm just noting the ways it is different. Yeah. Um, but within that ways it's different, I would fight, like, the ogre as a mini-boss, and then there's the seven Ashina Spears guy, who I still haven't fucking beaten. And there was the dude on the horse, and there was the big, um... boar guy you have to fight. The, the big boar in Ashina Castle. And just all of these, like... I would throw myself at it and throw myself at it and I would think I was figuring it out and be like, this is pretty good. I think I figured this out. And then throw myself at it again and it just wouldn't work this time. It would fall apart. And when I would beat them, it would feel like 50% luck of like, well, thank God I was frame perfect on that counter this time because sometimes I'm not frame perfect and I just die in one hit because that's what bosses do to you in this game. And, like, I was just feeling more frustrated than I was invigorated. Where, like, when I beat a boss in Dark Souls, I would do, like, this giant exhale or inhale or something. Like, get my breath back. And I would feel, like, on top of the world. And I would shut the game off and, like, you know, cheer. And in Sekiro, I would do it and then just kind of slump in my chair. Like, okay, I, I guess I did it. And, like, that's how I felt after Lady Butterfly. And that's how I felt. There was the one before Lady Butterfly, too. You have to fight this big, fat, the, the drunkard guy. Yes. Um, 
And that was my favorite to figure out how to beat because I kind of found a pretty creative solution to beat him that I can talk about later. But, um, you know, like, it's not that I don't understand the mechanics. I think I understand them. I think I understand all the posture stuff. I've gotten much, much better at it. You know, I, the way I beat Lady Butterfly was mostly just staying up close to her and countering things and getting posture damage and, and killing her that way. And I got pretty good at it to do that. But I'm just feeling frustrated. It is such a fast game. It is such a kind of twitchy game. It is so physically demanding on the controller, I feel like. And there is so much fast reaction stuff where I just like I just don't even feel like my the synapses of my brain like firing at the speed the game is asking of me and I was feeling something here that I did not feel with Dark Souls or Cuphead or most of the hard games I mentioned earlier that I really love I was just like begging for a difficulty meter in this game because the thing I keep coming back to is Sekiro feels to me like if you bought a Halo game and the only difficulty option was legendary and you had never played a Halo game, so you're learning how to play Halo, Halo would be impossible to play on Legendary as a first time. You couldn't do it. That's not what it's designed for. And just in my head, it feels like every time I go up against a boss, I feel like I'm missing the lower difficulty that you play the first time to learn the game, and what I'm playing feels like the difficulty that's designed for knowing how the game is and having mastered it. And that's what I keep coming back to. And like Genichiro, I've been at him for three or four days. Like, mm -hmm. I have been there. I went back and did most of the Hirata estate. I have come back to him every day and done another hour of grinding on it and just nothing. And I, I haven't even gotten to the phase where he starts doing the lightning. I haven't gotten that far in him. So, like, it's... And I've watched every YouTube video. I've tried to learn everything I can. And I just feel like I physically can't play this game. And I guess I don't know what to say. Um, and I hope this all makes sense. Because, again, mm -hmm. I'm not trashing the game or saying it's not like Dark Souls. It sucks. Because I've seen... Because I also looked this up. Because I was online. And I'm like, have other people felt this way? Am I crazy? And I'm not. There are a lot of people who have said... Like, I've seen... Uh, I saw a whole Reddit thread that was like this of people saying, like, this seems like a really cool game. I'm not complaining about it being different than Dark Souls. I love that they're trying something new. But I can't play it. It's too hard. And that's kind of how I'm feeling. Yeah, so one thing I want to say immediately is I I don't think that this game is too hard for you to beat. Like, I, I just fundamentally... I think, like, there are people for whom that will be true because it is it is definitely more physically demanding than Dark Souls. Um, but I don't think it's so tremendously hard that you just physically cannot do it. Um, there's a couple of things of one... Um, so Genichiro is the boss in the game that is the boss that if you don't, like, in your bones, fundamentally understand the combat. Not just, like, you watch the YouTube videos and you get it, but, like, you've, you've kind of, it's sunk into you. Genichiro is almost impossible to beat. So he is, like, he's the Bell Gargoyles. He is the Father Gascoigne, who's a boss from Bloodborne early on, is probably an even closer example of this thing that From Software likes to do of you hit a certain point in the game where they, they design a boss... And it's like a really magical trick of game design where there's not, for Genichiro, there's not a lot I can point out to that these are the reasons why he is this way. But basically everybody that's hit him has hit a wall that then, like, you have to overcome. Like, you have to get a certain, like, get the game on this, like, very basic fundamental level to be able to overcome um, Genichiro. And then once you do, like, 
the rest of the game doesn't feel that hard until you get to like like the last bosses are very difficult. Um, but like Genichiro, and this is like not me being like I'm pro gamer or whatever. It's just you know I play the, the, the game all the way through and stuff. Like Genichiro is not a hard boss. Like once you fully get that the game, Genichiro is not that difficult. Um, and I think the game is not as fast as you think it is, Jonathan. Okay. Um, because it doesn't it like it really does not rely on ridiculously fast reaction time. So there's one thing that I would recommend is if you're not doing this, don't try to only be like when you're blocking, do I'm going for that frame perfect hitting L1. Mash on L1. Just I've been doing that, yeah. Make sure you're just like like when you as soon as you think that that attack is coming, just mash on L1 as as quick as you can because the game is not punishing in that regard there's not really if you're hitting l1 as fast as you can that parry animation cycles incredibly quickly so when he does stuff like his big flurry attack where he does that big wind like he does one hit does a big wind up hits and then goes ting 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 like that attack where he jumps in the air um if you just mash l1 you will basically parry all of those hits and that will take out a huge amount of his posture damage but see, um, sometimes it does. Sometimes it just takes down my posture damage, and then he don't just be worried about your posture damage too much. Like okay. that's not like if you're if you're paying attention too much to your own posture meter. Like that's very rarely that will be an issue in the game. Like I would just okay. mostly be like it, if he breaks your posture, just dodge as soon as you can. Um, because for me, the thing that so like to talk about my experience with the game early on. Um, because because I had, I think, a lot of the feelings you had when I was at the very beginning of Sekiro, where, because one, because I, I did something that I think the game was not fully intending, where when I opened up the Hirata estate section, which you do very early, yeah. I went as far as I could in that without progressing forward. So I was stuck, like I was trying to fight Lady Butterfly before I had seen Horse Guy, um, wow. which is not... That's not the way the game is intended to be played. Like, I think the game very much wants you to beat um, Gyobu Masataka Oniwa, the horse guy. Um, he's, like, the actual first boss. He's not particularly hard if you know what you're doing. Like, I think because I was stuck on... Like, I smoked that dude because I was already fighting Lady Butterflies. Like, this fucking game is ridiculous. Then I fought that guy. I was like, okay, this game is doable. Like, that's, the, that's another boss. Like, I can kill that guy very easily. Um, for me, like, the game... The combat in the game is very much about um, you, like, I think it's one, like, stripping away a lot of what you know about playing other games, which is hard because the game, the combat is very unique. Um, It's got a rhythmic quality to it with the parry and stuff that most other games just don't have. And then it's also about, I think, like, trying to strip away... There's almost this, like, weird martial arts quality to the game of, like, trying to strip away, like, your consciousness or something, of, like, trying to strip away all your hesitation and fear and all of that that you have when encountering these like really difficult bosses because when you do a lot of those encounters in the game are not as hard as i think everybody including myself like make them the first time you encounter them you just get flustered and you're nervous and like you're you're thinking about yourself playing the game too much and and when you get into the flow state with sekido like i just i have like these like some of my strongest memories of that game are moments of clarity in the middle of boss fights that I felt were impossible. Boss fights that make Genichiro look like the little, like like an orphan kid on the street that's like famished that you like smack and he's dead. Like he's he's nothing. Boss fights that make him look like nothing. 
and being like, this is, I cannot physically beat this game. Like, this must be impossible. And then hitting a moment of clarity where it looks like the game is moving in slow motion because it's not moving that fast. Like, look at the animation, like the attack animation you have as your character, which is more or less about as fast as any attack moves in the game. It's slow. You can see the windup. You can see every part of that animation. It's not like something like Devil May Cry where the attacks that are like can go lightning fast and you can't possibly see them because it's like this full move happens in like two frames you know it's not like a fighting game where a jab in a fighting game is literally faster than the human brain can like interpret that information and for you to block it you have to know they're going to do it before they press the button it's not that kind of thing like it is completely doable it but it is difficult and it will push you to this point where it feels impossible but I would encourage you to try to reapproach it with a like, with that mindset of you can definitely do it. It is not impossible. Don't be afraid of Genichiro. Like push him, be aggressive, push him into a corner. Um, because to me, the best moments in Sekido are when you're fighting a boss that you were felt were impossible was impossible, and then all of a sudden you hit this moment where every single thing that that boss does just pushes themselves into a corner everything they do makes you stronger every attack they give out does more damage to you or to them because you're blocking it and you're countering it and you know and every like the bigger moves they put out the bigger damage you're doing to them because you're responding to it correctly and you get to these fights where like again this is not me saying that like i'm amazing at this game this is me saying that like once you kind of go through this whole learning process with it i think anyone can do this you can beat genichiro in like 90 seconds because once you've got that motherfucker down you have got that motherfucker down and there is nothing he can do against you because every move he throws out just pushes him further into the corner um so that's what i will say about like my as someone who has gone through the process and knows how frustrating that game can be early on that's what I would say is like don't I would I would be happy if you didn't give up on it and like try yeah. to try to go it again like calm down refreshed like because sometimes like you sometimes you have to take a day away from Sekido like I had when I was on the last boss that is ridiculously hard I had to take like this is my off day like this is I'm walking away from the game I cannot just bash my head against. Um, the last boss in this game over and over again I need to come back refreshed and once I did I didn't beat him immediately but once I did I started that process that by the end of it it was like I have you down motherfucker like I can beat you because once you have a boss down this is what I learned when I played the game through the second time like you can beat that boss a million times once you've beaten him once it's over like they can do nothing to you and that's something I don't think is true of Dark Souls that's something that I think Dark Souls you like you have to for some of the bosses it's maybe true for most of the bosses you it's harder to just have them down because the combat is not so razor precise as Sekiro um and is and you can just like well I just didn't see that attack coming or there's nothing I could do about that attack because the enemies are so huge in Dark Souls in Sekiro you're mostly just fighting other other people and and you can definitely beat them yeah I just I've I've I feel so exhausted with it, though. And I, because, like, I, I understand everything you're saying, and I, I find that really interesting. And I believe, I totally believe that that's there. It's just, I just, I wasn't, like, there was a point where it's just, I wasn't enjoying the, like, the attempt to get there. Because also, get, if, if Genichiro is, like, the equivalent of the Bell Gargoyles, let's say, 
that's way later, all things being relative, I feel like, in Sekiro, it's, because... It feels like it's later because I think Sekiro is harder. Like, it's not... It actually yeah. doesn't take very long to get to Genichiro. It's just, like, you're trying to learn the game and get in dying along the way. And so, like, those yeah. mini-bosses make it feel like it's longer. It's really not that long for you to get to him. Because I just feel like something should have... More should have clicked by now. I, I don't know. Because I also... This is the other thing, is that... This game has frustrated me in a way Dark Souls in 80 hours never came close to frustrating me, even with the Bell Gargoyles. I did not throw a controller once on Dark Souls. And I am 26 now. I don't throw my controllers much anymore. I did that more when I was younger. I broke a controller this week. I didn't want to. I didn't mean to. But Lady Butterfly really pissed me off at one point. And what it was, was thinking I had it down... And going back in and it all just falls apart because, oh, I didn't actually have it down. And uh, now I have a DualShock 4 that does not have a, an L2 button <laughs> anymore because it broke off. Um, so I'm sorry, DualShock 4. You died to Lady Butterfly. She, she took your life. I actually took your life. I threw you. But luckily I had a backup. Um, so yeah, so like that level of frustration, I just... It really, like, it felt unhealthy for me. I just, I don't know. And I guess I don't, I guess I don't know what to do at this point other than throw myself at Genichiro some more and try to get into that state you're saying. Because I've also, like, I've heard that advice you said of, like, don't be afraid of him, just be really aggressive. Or not just be. I know you're not just saying that. But, like, that's one part of it. And I've tried that. And, like, there are times where I feel like I've gotten close. Like, I was Mikiri countering a bunch of stuff and I got down through his first health bar really quick i was like this is fucking great and then it kind of all fell apart and i haven't gotten his bar down again yet at all so like i don't know because there's things just i don't know it's things like the mikiri counter took the longest time for me to figure out even how to fucking do it because yeah. the game is terrible at explaining it those you can do those tutorials with with hambe the the undead guy yeah, the undying yeah they're fucking useless tutorials because they make it so much easier than it's ever going to be in the actual game um but anyway, like, I did finally figure out how to do the Makiri counter against uh, Genichiro, and that felt great. But then, like, you also realize, like, okay, but he has three of those um, attacks that will knock you down. The, the red the kanji unblockable. Attacks, The yeah. unblockable ones. And the other two, if you mistake them and try to Makiri counter, he'll just kill you in one move because you'll be moving into him, but you can't actually deflect that, and he will just kill you. And and that's part of it too. It's just like the time to death is so fast. Sometimes I feel like I go against a boss and I have no time to try anything because if you mess up, you're done. You're just done. And luckily, it's very gracious on checkpointing and everything. You don't have to go through a bunch of enemies to get to the bosses in this game. But I don't know, man. It it really I I've never played a game that is hard like this game is hard. Yeah, so, I mean, one thing you can do, again, is if you go back and explore the areas around the castle, there are other locations you can go to. Um, okay. That you, like, so there's, like, an underground I saw passage. there's an underground area. I didn't know if I was supposed to go there yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, supposed to go is all relative. Because, actually, yeah. one thing that's interesting, because when I played the game through on my second playthrough, I went through those areas before I f- finished off Ginichiro, because it's, like... I want to see how it's different that way. Because the way I did it the first time is I kind of did what you did, where I 
did all the Hero Dynasty State stuff. Then I was fighting Kenichido, um, and then fought him until I beat him. And then when they start telling you to go down those other paths, I went down those paths. Um, so on my second playthrough, I was like, what happens if you don't do that? And there's so, it's kind of interesting because there are things that are actually different. Like, there are some characters you meet in some scenarios that are slightly different if you go before you fight Genichiro or, or before you beat Genichiro or after you beat Genichiro. And one of the... Pla- if you go to Senpo Temple, there's actually something that is... It's maybe slightly better for you to go there and do that area because there's something that is a little bit more clear to you because you meet someone um, that is not there for different reasons if you do it after Genichiro's dead. So, Interesting. Yeah, so so th- if you if you want to give Sekiro another chance, you can definitely go play around, like yeah. go explore around, do some of the other areas, um, or just try to, again, like it's that trying to like not be in your body. Because I do like, I think, man, there's stuff about this game I want to talk about that I don't want to can't for spoiler reasons but like the like the game i think is very literally like trying to teach you this kind of buddhist martial arts thing and that's one of the reasons why i i under like i see why as a designer someone like miyazaki would not want to put in the other difficulty options because this is like you're trying to push people in this certain way to distill that kind of philosophy which is not to say that you couldn't do that with other difficulty options by but Having played the game, I understand the reasoning behind. Let's just do it the way we did Dark Souls. Yeah, the difficulty thing does piss me off, though, because I, I just don't know. Like I've played games before where I play them one way, and then I bump it up to the more intended difficulty, or whatever you say it, and I do find, oh, this is actually way better. Like Last of Us is a good example where we both discovered that survivor mode is totally the best way to play Last of Us. Yeah. It didn't diminish it the first time for me. And I know they're very different games. Um, yeah. But I don't I don't know because like everyone's saying like, oh, Sekiro needs an easy mode. No, I'm not saying easy. <laughs> you could pump some of this down. I don't think it would become easy. That's That's a strong word to throw around when it comes to this game. But like, yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm really at a loss. Um, and I will I'll give it another try, totally. Uh, and think about what you said, and maybe I'll go look at some of those other areas and and try to find more. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a son of a bitch, man. Yeah, no, it, it's it's hard, but I do think like kind of like with Dark Souls, because I think that that there there are people for whom they played Sekiro and like like this is not that hard, and went in like with it with a different mindset and saw that game from a different light. That like again like. We didn't... I think the first time we recorded a podcast about Sekiro was after I was over the hump. So, like, my impressions are post me, like, kind of figuring the game out and kind of getting it in that very instinctual level. But there are definitely people for whom, like, they're like, Sekiro's not that hard. Kind of the way that, like, for me, like, Dark Souls... Like, it's hard. But for me, no Dark Souls game is actually particularly difficult. Especially after you play through one of them. None of them are particularly hard. Um... Which is why I like with like playing... One thing I did like a lot about Sekiro was getting... Sekiro was able to give me that feeling I had in Dark Souls 1 of like... Oh, I get to like actually master something. Not like with Dark Souls 2 and Bloodborne and Dark Souls 3... Where so much of the things I've already learned have transferred into this play experience... In such a way that those games I'm one-shotting bosses with like a high frequency... Because I just know how to play the game at this point. Um, Sekiro... Is a is a very different beast from those games in terms of just like the fundamental combat is is almost completely different. Like so much so that again, like the whole experience I had playing that game was having to unlearn dodging because 
if you try to dodge in that game the way you dodge in Dark Souls, you will get fucked the fuck up. Um, I have been learning that. I've been trying to dodge less and counter more. Yeah. Because the dodge is... Because it's not a roll, it's a step. And it's... it's, it's uses are very limited. We, yes, we, it's only, only against very specific attacks should you actually be doing the dodge move. Because... And that's like... You know, I think the biggest hurdle, honestly, I faced in playing Sekiro was none of the major bosses. It was the fucking spear mini boss in Hirata Estate, where you go over that bridge and there's the wide field and there's like the one dude with the oh spear. that guy right yeah. yeah and he's a mini boss. Um, which again, for context, I fought that dude before I knew what a guy on a horse was in Sekiro. Like yes. that was one of the first things I did in that game because he's like halfway through that Hirata Estate section. And I had the Mikiri counter and had just no idea how to use it. Like, I knew how to use it theoretically, like you said, because I had done the Hanbei, the Undying tutorial. But, like, yeah, actually applying that in on an enemy with an unknown moveset that isn't, doesn't telegraph it as clearly as Hanbei does is much more difficult. And it was that, like, the Mikiri counter as a move is almost like a distillation of Sekido. Of what that move is, is you fucking see that a dude with a big-ass spear is about to stab you in the face with that spear, and instead of running away or trying to jump to the side, because if you try to do that, you'll probably get fucked up, you plant your fucking feet, look that dude in the eyes, and he's about to thrust that spear at you, and you just run straight at him, fucking put your foot up, stick his sword or his spear into the fucking ground, and stab him in the neck, because fuck that guy, and fuck his spear, he's not better than me. And that's like that's what Sekiro is about. It's like you're, you never are running away you're always just like a no. Like I, like, I am as good as you, motherfucker. Like, you try to stab me with that spear, I'm going to fuck your shit up. I want you. Like, this is the thing. I want you to thrust that spear at me. Because I have the Mikiri counter. Like, this, it's way better than a normal parry. If you try to thrust at me, you're digging your own goddamn grave. And that's the one, that's one of the things about the Sekido combat I love is that sense of you are waiting for the boss to pull out that big flashy move that has a big kanji pop up on screen. Because once you have it down, as soon as you see that happen, it's like you are fucked. You have no idea how fucked you are right now because you're about to use this big flashy attack on me that I, I know how to deal with. Yeah, I, I, you know, I definitely I got to that point with Lady Butterfly. Where I do feel like I got... That's the boss I've gotten closest to like feeling good at the game. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. She's probably the hardest one I've beat. Um, yeah, but I like, personally find Lady Butterfly more difficult than Ginisho. Yeah, I... You know, it, it was... Because I got to the point where I was good enough at blocking her attacks and building up that posture bar that I could do it that way. And that was... And just being aggressive and staying on her. I was able to do that. Um... Uh, even though I think the run where I finally beat her, I was down to like the point where you can't even see you have health anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had no, they're not Estus flasks, but whatever they're called in this game, the, the gourds. healing gourds, healing yeah. gourds. I love the healing gourd is a great fucking term for healing. Yes. Um, yeah. I had like nothing left. So yeah, it's again, it's, this is not me saying the game is bad. Just I'm trying to figure it out and I'm curious if I can. And I will definitely give it another try, but uh, it's a it's a lot of game. Holy yeah, shit. no. But again, like the section you're at, I think I finished under one hour on my second playthrough. Which again is not me. That's not like me bragging. That's me saying that once you have that shit down, you just 
run through those motherfuckers. And well, that's and not I, me yeah. running past people. That's me killing every single person yes. along the way. And it's just like, oh, this is done. Like, I, with the first time I played through it, I th- like it took me like 15, 20 hours or something. It's like, I thought it's like, this must, the game must be almost over. It's like, nope. Because I assume you carry over all your abilities and everything. Yeah, so, yeah. but they do, they make the enemies do more damage and they have right. more health. So it like compensates for it on New Game Plus. Yeah. But I was going to say, but like, I've gone through those areas several times and I'm really good at them now. Just the areas with like normal enemies because I've been grinding and getting some abilities and stuff and money. Um, and I do find that pretty fun where you can just like, some of those dudes will come at you and it's like, counter, counter, stab, you're dead. You yeah, know? and you can just murder like 10 people in like under two seconds. It's yes. just like, the, it's, the murdering in Sekiro is very good. Like, it's it's just, very good you, murdering. Yeah, if you want to run through an area and just kill a bunch of people, it, Sekiro does that better than almost any other game. Every attack animation in this game is pretty much the end of Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro. Yes. Where you, you, he just cuts the dude in half and blood comes out everywhere. Yeah. That's pretty much every death blow in the game. It's amazing. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give you an update next week. Yeah, I, I, I hope you can, can, can find it in that game. Because I do think... Because again, to. there are a lot of people that... that are at where you're at with that game and we're at, at where you're at at that game and then if you can get over it I think you get over it like I think yeah. past, if you can get past Genichiro that's where the game is like in you you know in that mm. kind of way so yeah yeah cause yeah and, and I would you know I don't want my, my DualShock 4's death to be in vain exactly yes you have uh, to avenge your DualShock 4 by beating Sekiro I do I, I, you know, I have never broken a controller. I came close with that DualShock 3 that was in bad shape for a number of years, and I gave to you that one time when I went on vacation yes, and left you with my... Yeah, yes, but it, but it was fully functional, and I did eventually trade it into a GameStop for $25 because they're putzes. Um, I think that paid for Dragon Quest XI. <laughs> like, it's anyway. impressive to me that you broke a DualShock 4 but never broke a DualShock 3 because every time I touched a DualShock 3, I was afraid I was just going to break it by holding oh, I know. it. Because I didn't do much to that. That DualShock 3, what happened to that, Sean, is I went like, I was playing Last of Us and I just went like, ah, drat, kind of banged it on the table a little bit and that's all that it took. This was like when I broke my DualShock 4, this was full like Lady Butterfly, like, you know, like just yeah. toss it across the room way harder than I, it's when you, it's, this is what's bad when you throw a video game controller, Sean, is when you do it from the wrist and not from the arm. Oh, like yeah. pitching a softball. It's like... Yeah, and you're like... You're all tensed up, so you're like yes. using more muscle than you think you are. Yeah, you just flick it, and that thing spins like a boomerang, hits the wall. I have never... I've never really thrown a controller. Um, I've certainly never broken a controller. I have been in the room. It was when I was like 13 with a friend when they broke a controller, and that's where they just fucking flick that thing at the wall. It's like, yep, that's... There are a lot of buttons on the ground now. Oh, that's what a controller looks like on the inside. Yep. I'd never seen it. Cool. Yeah. I. Uh, it's funny. What happened first was... So I, I picked it up, and the L1 button had just popped off entirely. But also, there's a little piece of plastic between L1 and L2. Same as between R1 and R2. Yeah. And R1 and R2 were also a little unaligned, but I was able to pop them back into place. But this was all unaligned, and I'm trying to get the L1 button back in, but that other piece of plastic was, like, really fucked up. So I got a fork, and I'm, like, trying to, like, move things around in there, and I wound up accidentally just breaking the trigger, like, in half. So the L1 button is back on and works, but L2 is fucked. You know, like, like L1, probably the most important button in Sekiro. So it so is. So there you go. 
Frankly, I could probably play Sekiro with that controller mostly because L2 doesn't do a ton in that game. Yeah, I don't even remember what L2 does off the top of my head. Yeah, because R2 is your Shinobi Stab. prosthetic, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. It's whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah you, you hold have. down R1 to stab. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay. I'll give you guys an update on that next week. And we'll, cool. see, we'll see what happens. But, Sean, let's switch. Uh-huh. Give me the pipe. Yes. Yeah, I'll hand you the pipe. Here's my beard. I'm going to get okay. on the couch, lay down. Okay. All right. So, Sean, you are in the middle of season six of Game of Thrones. Yes, which I'll I lo- realized the other day that that means I'm effectively like a season and a half away because season seven and eight are both short seasons, right? Yeah, combined, they're barely longer than a normal season. Yeah, so I'm almost done with Game of Thrones, which I find fucking hilarious. <laughs> because there's clearly... <laughs> Like, they need more time to tell the story? Yes, no, there's yeah. definitely a lot more. For, at Game of Thrones pace, there's a lot more than one season left of fucking Game of Thrones, or there should yeah. be. So um, I think it's funny. You said you just watched the Hodor episode. Most fans do consider that a high point of the series. So I do, I think that episode, generally speaking, is pretty good. Um, there's, so there's a, a couple of things. Let's, yeah, let's talk about that episode first, and then we'll go through... Um, because the last time we talked about Game of Thrones was a while ago, and it on was the podcast when... you were at season two, so yes, because we yeah, because it was before even Red Wedding stuff. Like you and yeah. I talked about it a little bit off the air, but uh, we like so yeah. it's been a while since we did the check in. But yes, the last episode I watched, I watched it last night before I went to bed, um, was the episode in the middle of season six where you find out why Hodor is named Hodor. Um, Game of Thrones spoilers if you haven't seen season six, you know, um, don't. Um, so that episode overall is, is as good as any Game of Thrones episode is good in the sense of that, like, ah, some of the stuff in it is cool. Other the stuff in it is just meandering bullshit and they just kind of mix it together whenever the fuck they want to and cut at random. Um, and, but that episode ends with a sequence that is one, I just want to watch the fucking TV show that is about the Night King and his army of zombies fighting the five, like, elven druids that are left from some ancient battle thousands of years ago. Like, that's so much cooler than anything that has happened in Game of Thrones. And it just made me want the Game of Thrones anime because the Game of Thrones anime would be about all that cool shit. Because you just have these elf-like druid ladies throwing fucking rocks that are exploding into magic fire while they're being overrun by zombies and the fucking Night King and his White Walkers are just sort of striding up like fucking Jason from Friday the 13th because they're badass. And then you just have some dumb humans doing dumb human shit. I don't care. Like, why should I care when we cut back to fucking Cersei or whoever when I know that there's, like, magic wars going on in the north that are fucking awesome and we're talking about, like, some dumb bullshit? Who cares? Um, But then you get this sequence where you find out that Hodor, a character who is maybe problematic, um, who is a big guy who he can only say his name Hodor and that's the only thing he can say... And um, you've been having all this stuff where Bran, back from after season five, he just isn't there. And for a second, I thought, like, are they just, is Bran gone? I know that he comes back at some point because I know what happens at the end of the show. But He's got to become king, Sean. He's so yep. important. He took a season off. He's just gone. After, like, at the end of season four, where season four ends all the characters in interesting places. And then just Bran's just like, oh, I don't know. Then you find out that he's been seeing visions of the past. Um, and, and you get a hint that, like, oh, maybe he can actually interact with the visions of the past. And then when all the humans are running away from the zombies, 
uh, the lady, like, Bran is in the past looking at young Hodor, who before he's Hodor, he's like Willis or some shit. And then the lady's like, ah, oh, hold the door! And then it's just like, Echoes hold the door, and the kid's like, hold the door! And he has a seizure, and he's just saying, hold the door, hold the door. And they're like, oh, because, yeah, then eventually slurs into just Hodor. That's dumb. This is dumb. Game of Thrones is, Jonathan, Game of Thrones is a stupid fucking TV show. I'm sorry, I, I like the Hodor thing. It's I so it dumb. It, it, I could see it working well if that's what this TV show was. The problem is Game of Thrones doesn't know what the fuck it wants to be. And oh. so when you cut to the zombie people and the magic wood elves and the time-traveling kid in the wheelchair who, whose, like, thoughts echo through time and give this kid a seizure, so he, and, that's, and so there's some weird time loop of Hodor bullshit, and then you cut to just, like, again, people sitting around talking about, like, weird fake medieval politics. It's like, what? What is this show even? Like, what, okay. what, are you, what are we even doing here? I can understand that because the show is pretty allergic generally to the fantasy stuff. And it cuts down on it a ton. Like, Bran in the books that have already been published, which you're past books at this point on the show. Um, you're at story that has not been published in book form yet. But already, like, we've had way more of Bran doing time travel stuff, like magic stuff. And, like, the show just... The books invest in it so much more, and so the balance is clearer. It also has much less of the White Walker stuff, ironically, because the show thinks it's cool to do big White Walker battles, which sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But, like, yeah, I I do think that's an interesting part of the show, is that the show generally clearly feels like it is more interested in the politics stuff, but once in a while it'll do fantasy, and it generally does it really poorly, I think, the show version. And so I can see that being very jarring. Yeah, and it just, it just, I don't know. There's something about it that just kicked me out of the moment so hard of this Hodor thing. Because also, this is the point at which Game of Thrones as a TV show feels aware of Game of Thrones Twitter. Oh, yeah. So a lot of the dialogue and just the, like, weird coincidences and things like that feels so kind of self-aware. Um, is particularly, there's a line by Brienne in an episode. I think it might have been that same episode. Um, where she's talking to Sansa about Jon Snow, and she's like, uh, oh, he's a brooding kind of guy. Yeah. But I guess I get it, considering the circumstances or something. It's just like uh, people in this universe don't talk that way. Brienne of Tarth certainly doesn't talk that way. Like, like yes, I get that Jon Snow is brooding, and that's the thing that people in our world say about him, but people don't talk like people i feel like people don't talk like that in our world they certainly don't talk like that in game of thrones world and yes i remember like the i remember that moment and i just have to warn you that is everything in season seven and eight is it, it feels like twitter wrote season seven and eight of game of thrones yeah and it, yeah it's just like game of it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of season seven of doctor who where stephen moffat became a little bit too aware of the fan culture yeah same thing with like sherlock i think it was season three where like like that started to happen to his writing, and then he kind of at least in Doctor Who he got it back in check when Peter Capaldi came in. But it's like, but that's like Stephen Moffat who is like one of the best writers in television, and like it like set him astray for a little bit. When it starts happening to Game of Thrones, that is already on some rocky foundations, yes. as far as I'm concerned. Um, for the TV show, uh, it's then just like a no, you can't, don't do this. It's it's don't when they go this. when they go off book. They replace the source material of George R. R. Martin's rich, beautiful books with Twitter and fan theories, and they just want to respond to that, and the show gets 
way too fucking self-aware, and you will see that, but uh, you yes. haven't gotten anywhere near the worst of it. Yeah, so that's where I'm at with season six. six. Um, that's the last episode I watched. And so, yeah. Let's rewind, like, though, because you did like season four, from what I remember, because I told mm-hmm. you it's the best one, and you agreed. Yes, no, season four is easily the best season. Um, I still think, like, nothing has gotten anywhere close to the level of quality of the Blackwater episode from season two. Yeah. That is still far and away the best concentrated piece of Game of Thrones um, television. Um, Fair enough. I imagine that that will prove to be true from here forward as well, if nothing has stopped it so far. Um, Because, and they do, like, because now they do the thing, like, every season you have the episode that's, like, basically, like, here's the big battle episode um, but none of them have been as good as that. Like, even the season four one, which is good, which is the attack on the wall. Um, like, that's a good episode, but it doesn't have as much sort of character depth um, as all the stuff with Tyrion and Cersei had in the Blackwater episode. But season four as a whole, the reason why that season is, to me, the best season is because that's the one season that I think manages to fairly well balance the different storylines going on. Because my top-level take of Game of Thrones is one, like, I think it's a, a good show in, some, in, like, a lot of production elements and, like, the acting and the production and generally the directing and all that kind of stuff is usually very, very good. And I get why people like it from that perspective. Um, but if this is partially a personal preference thing and then also, I think, a more general criticism thing of the Game of Thrones fails almost at every turn to ever kind of construct digestible pieces of story for the audience to pace out this very long narrative they're spinning um and in replacement of that what they do is they have a huge selection of different subplots all going on at the same time to the point where like if you look up the wikipedia articles on game of thrones episodes which i have done sometimes because i'm like curious how is the book different or something like that like they're the most convoluted wikipedia articles you can see because every single section of the episode has to be split into what is going on in these different locations because there's too much to fit into one synopsis and almost always the different plot lines have nothing to do with each other they have no intersecting thematic material other than the broad thematics of like the corruption like power and how power corrupts people which is as far as like is basically what game of thrones i think is about on a big scale level um, there's very little motivation in terms of cutting between uh, subplots, even when they tee up motivation and they'll be talking about like, oh, and like, and, and we will send you to, you know, like you can join the Night Watch and be sent to the Wall, and you think like, oh, this would be a good opportunity to cut to the Wall and check in with Jon Snow and his friends, and then they'll cut to fucking Dorne or some shit, and then 20 minutes later they'll cut to the Wall. So even when they tear up motivated cuts, they don't usually take it. Um, and when they do cut, the way that Game of Thrones chooses to cut um, through subplots is usually by having um, micro cliffhangers about every 10 to 15 minutes. Yes. And so they will choose to cut on whenever the action has gotten the most exciting within whatever the subplot is and then take that moment of like a big reveal or something to cut to another subplot. Um, and then oftentimes you don't get to see the other side of what that thing was until the next episode or two episodes later, if they don't cut back to whatever's happening with Arya, you will not see what happens for with Arya for another, like, if you're watching it in a row, for another, like, 40 minutes or so. Um, and, and there's something about that that is exciting in the moment 
when you're doing cuts like that and you're doing micro cliffhangers, the problem is you're always passing the baton off in Game of Thrones to something else. And very rarely does Game of Thrones is Game of Thrones ever interested in giving you a payoff. Every once in a while, usually in episode nine of the season, they'll give you one or two strong payoffs for a storyline. Um, but usually they're just kind of constantly passing the baton. And then in most seasons, there's two or three sub storylines for whom there is nothing going on. And they just sort of drop the baton and stare at it for a little while until another plot line comes over and picks up the baton and like keeps on going on with whatever they're doing. The reason why season four is the best is that within that structure, most of those stories, there's very few people dropping the baton on the ground. Like even Sansa has some stuff going on. Not a lot, but she has some stuff going on. Um, Tyrion has a lot going on. Cersei has a lot going on. Arya has stuff going on. Jon Snow has stuff going on. Like, everybody has something they're doing that they're actively pushing forward and feels meaningful. And there are rich character interactions because everybody's paired with someone interesting. Like, Arya's paired with the Hound, so she has someone to talk to. That's a character that's interesting, that, that there's a relationship there. So when you cut to them, I get to see them doing a cool scene that's something interesting, and then you can cut away. Um... And so, and then season four ends with the best ending of any of the seasons, which is every single character has now been moved into an interesting spot on the board. And everybody is, has changed significantly and is on the precipice of moving forward with whatever their change is. Some characters that is kind of paid off on, um, a lot of them, like Sansa, that is not paid off on. And Sansa's storyline immediately gets reset. She's just captured by someone fucking else that's sadistic. Um... But yeah, that's like my, my top level main take on Game of Thrones is that I think it's a story that has a lot of great production values, a lot of great acting, all that stuff. It's just something that is a piece of television that is constantly passing off the payoff to the point where it is so obvious to me that this story, that this TV show, there's no claims about the books, this TV show would never have been able to do a good conclusion because this show is not interested in and has no idea how to conclude anything, even fucking scenes. So... Yeah, I understand that's my that. main take on Game of Thrones. It's it's interesting what you say about season four because that's how I feel, and and season four is based on the latter parts of book three, A Storm of Swords, and the way book three, because book three, like the first three books, are a really clear trilogy, and if you cut off the last chapter and the epilogue of book three, you could just end the series, and I think it would be really satisfying, like. Arya is off to Braavos. Jon Snow is the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. They moved that to season five, but that happens at the end of book three. Um, you know, uh, so Jon Snow is there. Uh, Tyrion has killed his dad and is is fleeing. You know, he and J and in the books actually they do a lot more interesting stuff with Tyrion there too. So like, it's it's not a necessarily a happy ending because like the Red Wedding has just happened. Everything's kind of but it like it is a culmination for everyone. And I've always thought in the back of my head. If George R. R. Martin never finishes the books, I'm just going to pretend it was a trilogy and lop off those last two chapters of Storm of Swords, and it's actually a really satisfying conclusion to the story. Because um, then they like book four is very much a like resetting the table kind of book, and like I actually like it. It's 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 very much reacting to the big events, and it's something the show never takes the time to do because they ignore book four and season five is really bad, and like. They just kind of try to push on, but like books four and five do a lot of like people reacting to all these horrible things that have happened. Like Tyrion, they fuck up so bad in the show, where like he never really has to wrestle with what he's done. They just are like eh, make some more quips, Peter Dinklage. 
Uh, we're not going to notice that you killed your dad and murdered your lover in cold blood. We're not going to talk about that anymore. That's not a storyline anymore. Um, yeah, so like it's it's interesting to me because that that totally is and and season four mostly nails those elements in terms of feeling culminate you know like it's a culmination. But then yeah. everything with Arya in Bravos is the worst stuff in the entire series, and I fucking hate it. Except there's also the Dorn stuff, which is fucking terrible, and they made up whole cloth that's not in the books, and it's fucking awful. And so Jamie, they fuck up incredibly poorly. Tyrion, they just do everything wrong with. Um, Jon Snow. It's okay, but then they also do the thing where he dies and gets resurrected, and they never mention it again, and it's really weird, and I don't know why they did that, mm-hmm. and yeah, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's pretty bad. I will say, so as someone who has not read the books and knows very little about them, I like, so season five, I'm not going to say is a good season or better seasons than other seasons. No, I am going to say, I think it's better than most seasons of Game of Thrones, just purely on the level of like, it's paced competently in a way that's like, okay, like I, I like most of the storylines feel kind of dumb, but I think a lot of the storylines have mostly felt dumb throughout a lot of Game of Thrones. Like, okay. you know, we spent a whole fucking season where we just cut to Jon Snow wandering through the wood or through the tundra with some lady. And we also then would cut to Jamie Lannister sitting in a cage, having the same fucking two conversations with characters over and over again. Like the show has always been very clumsy at handling most of its plot points. Um, in terms of that, like anything that's not whatever's like the main focal point for that season is just sort of like tossed off, but you yeah. still spend like 20 minutes per episode dealing with. And so season five, most of the stuff that happens is kind of dumb, but stuff is sort of happening. And so it's paced in a way that like, I think I maybe watched season five the fastest of any season because it's just like, it was, it felt like popcorn television, not a lot yeah. of substance, but I could move through it, um, which is something where a lot of earlier game of thrones is like trying to appeal to a prestige tv thing that i don't think it's quite good enough to actually execute on um and then is also trying to do a whole like oh and we have like like nudity and gore and trying to do a just like a popcorn tv trash kind of show but it's not doing that well enough either so it just kind of can can't find the balance until season four where it finds it in pockets of episodes like episode nine of season two um and season five is just like a yeah this is like a trashy fantasy soap opera like I can watch that. And it season five does have at least two really good threads, which is I think that's one of the best Jon Snow seasons. Yes, it is, yeah. When he's Lord Commander. And then and it's got Hard Home, which is hard to beat in terms of the just just the production of battle choreography and also I think Hard Home comes closest to the Blackwater thing of telling a self contained story through battle. Absolutely. Like the, the arc. Like- character depth yes. um, within it not just like it's a cool looking battle yeah because like there's that woman who's like that wildling mother who dies at the end of the episode and like she gets like a full character arc in that one episode and yeah. it's more than like Arya gets in three seasons in and, five, and it's six, one of those situ- where situations where game of thrones is interested in kind of paying off setup where it's like okay we've, we've been building up the white walker stuff like let's go yeah. full in and actually pay off some of that and show the night king and show how devastating these things are. Like, have a cool fight where you get to have, like, you know, they yeah. explode into ice because he's got the cool sword. Like, all that's like, yeah, like, that's, that's a very good episode. Yes, that's really good. And then also Cersei's story in season five, I think, is really good. And it's still good yes. in season six. Because that also is the season that ends with her doing the naked walk. And, like, yes. that's one of Lena Headey's best acting moments. Although it's actually just her head on someone else's body, which is a little distracting. But... Because yeah. you can kind of the CGI is not great, but um, yeah. So, it's... Although that is one thing where 
Although, because I looked it up in, in that the Faith Militant stuff, like all that stuff is in the books, right? Like that Walk of Shame mm, and that stuff is yes, there. Yes, more or less. It's, there's some differences, but yes. Yeah, so because that, that was actually one of the things that I was kind of surprised at because that I mean, I'm sure probably in the books it's set up better. In season five, that just feels like it comes the fuck out of nowhere. No, it's there from the beginning. Like George R. R. Martin okay. is really invested in the religions of Westeros, which the show mostly just has as kind of wallpaper. He does a lot more with it. Okay, yeah, because that was something that when I, re- when I looked it up and I was like, this surely this is something they just made up because it has never, ever come up before. Um, and yeah, and then it's like, oh no, it's in the books. That's weird because yeah, this is just like all of a sudden this whole thing with like the seven gods. Like I keep on thinking of the divine, the nine divines from Elder Scrolls, but it's not that. It's seven gods. Um, but it's like it's their sort of pseudo Christianity kind of thing they're doing. And it's like, like I think it's a fine plot thing on its own, and it gives Cersei one of the more satisfying plot arcs of any season so far because it feels like okay, like, this is something that this character is sort of consistently dealing with um, that is new for her, um, which is, like, Cersei has mostly just been kind of fairly static for most of the show, um, and so it was cool to see her get to do new stuff, but it was, like, the setup for it was just so fucking just bolt out of nowhere. Oh, and there's this whole religious cult that has an absurd level of power within this culture that we have just never really mentioned before. They're just sort of, they were just there, and then now they have enough power to kidnap two king two queens and keep them locked yes. up like fucking really okay i guess that's a thing they could do that's weird yeah it's because in the books they also get into the the whole the whole mechanic is cersei invites them in to and gives them all this power in order yeah. to shore up her power and it backfires but that's also tied into something in the books where jamie at the end of book four which is roughly when cersei is in prison but before the walk of shame Jamie literally burns his bridge with her. Like, he gets a letter asking if, if he can come and be her champion to get her out of this scenario. And he burns the letter and he's done. And oh, in the show, Jamie, they're still going back and forth on, does Jamie love Cersei? I don't know. We're going to flip a coin this episode. Oh, my God. Like, Jamie Lannister is so close to being a very good character in the show. Yeah, he always And then anytime Cersei comes up, it, it's something where it's like, you can't convince me that these two characters are, like, so deeply in love that they would constantly just fuck up everything about their life because they love, like, it's some dumb, like, Romeo and Juliet-style thing. Except for we never saw them as kids. Like, we never saw that happen in the show. I assume in the books there's probably, like, where they communicate that through narrative and stuff like that. Um, They have inner monologues, so... Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, in in a book form, it's much easier to do that. Game of Thrones thinks that flashbacks are, like, anathema on the TV show, so it's like they just never do it. Um, until a character just gets magic time-traveling powers, and now we can have some flashbacks. Um, but, yeah, they mostly, when they do flashback material that would be flashbacks, it's a character giving a very intense monologue. It's usually pretty well done, but it means that there's, like, see, there are things that we need to be shown, I think, in a cinematic format for us to actually buy it as an audience. And the Jamie Cersei romance is one of those things that the show just never tries to establish in any way. Um, and then to find out that the show then takes it even further than the books do is fucking hilarious because it's like the book, the show's not equipped to handle even what the books had did with it. Then for them oh, no, to take like, it further, Jamie is bad. fully de-radicalized from Cersei by the end of book four. Like it's it's which which would be roughly like somewhere in season five. Um, so like it's kind of amazing to me because the show 
they i mean i'll just spoil they never really he dies in cersei's arms like it's stupid i, but yeah, like, I knew that in the show yeah yeah so it's it's a very weird choice they made um but yeah, the, then just season five, and then a lot of this carries over into season six. I hate everything with Arya and Bravos. Hate, 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 hate. You're coming up on my one of my least favorite episodes of the series in season six, which is her. Last I saw episode. Richard Grant in one of her episodes, and I was like, "That's Richard." I know, Grant. He's cool. I know. I wish it had been better. I uh, hate all of that. Uh, I hate everything in Dorne because it's awful and it looks like it was shot on a fucking porn set. It's so low rent. Exactly. Um, it's it's a trashy fantasy soap opera. Like it's basically like that Spartacus show that Stars yeah. made around the same time, like a little yeah. bit earlier. It's like the, it's it's one of those shows. It's like if it wants to be that, I think it should be that. And I think season five is sort of successful about it. Then season six yeah. just goes totally off the fucking rails. As yeah. far as I'm concerned, season five you're still in the depths of Daenerys and Marine too, which is bad. Um, God, Daenerys. That's that's another character they just. I'm curious. We haven't mentioned her yet. Yeah. So because you know she's not relevant to any other part of the show. Yes. It's like at least that's the one thing that is like I I do really like about having Tyrion in that side of the show is it makes it feel like oh Daenerys gets to be relevant to something that's cool. Um, it's not just like every fucking twelve episodes somebody in Westeros mentions and there's a lady that has dragons. It's like, okay, good. So other people in the show are aware that like all this crazy shit's happening. Um yeah, she's a character that obviously, you know, my reading of it is affected by the fact that I know that eventually she destroys all of King's Landing with her dragons and just kills a bunch of people. Like I know that happens, so I know where that goes. So I can't like forget that information. And and there were stretches of the show where I was like that's clearly where she eventually is going to go. I think, like, for most of, like, seasons three and four, that felt like a, yeah. I Like, she's so, she's a character that has, um, whenever she has access to power, she is so self-righteous. She And she thinks that she's doing something good. And, and she is helping people. Like, getting rid of slavery is nice. She's not doing it because she's a good person. She's doing it because she, she likes to enact her power. Um, and express her power on people because she was powerless for most of her life. And then she, she just happens to have a very, like, rigid moral compass that means, like, oh, we can, like, just sort of, if I just take over with an army and say slavery is done, problem solved, like, we solve, we fix slavery. Um, and then as soon as life is not as convenient as that, she just starts murdering people violently. Um, and that, like, for a, a good stretch of the show, that felt like a very, like, significant stable logical characterization that was consistent and then it slowly started to be like one episode she feels like that another episode basically feels like one episode they're critical of the white savior bullshit and then the next episode they're like no we're just full in on it um and the last thing that happened with daenerys was um her burning all the cows and then walking out of the fire and being like nope yep this is like they're it feels like they're no longer framing this as something that's meant to be like haunting of like yeah, this action is maybe justified in the moment, but it's, but there's going to be a time when it is not. Like that feel felt like they would do scenes like that, and that's where the the trajectory was. Now it just feels like a no. They're just full in on her. Like they just think that she's really cool because she's got dragons and she can kill people. And see, I never for a second thought the show was critical of her. I think you as a as a reader of the show, watcher of yeah. the show, can think that. I think the show has always been 100% all in on, look how cool this white lady is, look how cool these dragons are, look how cool all these, you know, black and brown hands lifting her into the air are. Like, yeah, that seems something. 
but like I just I just think the way it's directed and the way it is scored and the way it is 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 put together and written, I never felt the show was in on that and that's I think part of why fans had such a violent reaction to the end of the series was because the series I don't think the series itself ever cued that as clearly as a lot of people want it to have cued it. Yeah, because again, I think it's in. I do think there are moments where it feels like a no, like like where like she like there is a musical cue they use with Daenerys sometimes that is like very ominous, and it feels like yeah. oh, like like her doing this is bad, um, and and you're supposed to understand this like she's kind of ignoring some of the people giving her good advice. She's just killing a bunch of people. Um, but again, I think the show is very inconsistent about it. And 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 one of the actually one of the really important things to note all that is that season one she is fully like a hero character in that season like I, there's yeah. no moment in that season that feels like a, we're supposed to be critical or suspicious of her in her execution of power like she doesn't have as much power in those moments but if you if you were trying to build up the storyline you should see glimpses of that in her future like you should see pockets of where she's going to eventually like. Once she has power, she doesn't know how to wield it. She'll abuse it and kill people. Um, then they like season one. She is not that at all. Like season one, loves her as much as the rest of the show loves Jon Snow and just thinks like this is a hero character or loves Tyrion. It's like he's just a hero. Like these are like for all the people that think like or have talked about Game of Thrones having like oh so like psychologically and morally complex. It's like no, there are like really clear markers for everyone except for Daenerys. That's like this is a good person or a bad person. You root for this person or you hate this person. Um, Daenerys this is the is... only one that they don't do that with, but not in a morally complex way. In a way that the show doesn't know what the fuck it's doing with her. And this is where I have to come back to Tyrion for a second, Sean, because mm-hmm. I think part of the pro like yes. Putting Tyrion in that world ties her to the rest of the story in compelling ways, and I think Peter Dinklage and, and Amelia Clark are really good together. Yeah. But Tyrion is lifted up as one of the voices of reason and morality on the show. Yes. And so when you put him next to Daenerys, and he puts all his faith in her and she restores his faith in humanity... Mm-hmm. That says something about Daenerys that the show is not building towards. And this is where, I again, I hate to do all the book comparisons, but I think you'll find this interesting. In the book, So in the show, Tyrion is a little drunk and a little sad after killing his dad, but that's pretty much it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He does not change as a character much. In the books, when Tyrion kills his dad, right before that, he is not intending to do that. Or, or kill Shay, the, the whore. What happens is that Jamie frees him, same as in the show. So Jamie comes and gets him. But instead of Jamie and Tyrion having this tender moment, Jamie gives a little re- revelation in the book where he reveals. So, you know, there's that whole backstory we get from season one where Tyrion explains how he was in love with that woman. He got married, and then his father revealed the woman was a whore who was hired. Yeah. Do you remember all that? Mm-hmm. Jamie reveals that was a lie. That woman was never a whore. She really did love Tyrion, and Jamie and his father. It made that whole elaborate thing to make Tyrion feel bad about himself. And this completely rewrites Tyrion's relationship with his family. He lashes out at Jaime. He threatens, he promises revenge on Jaime and Cersei. Then he goes and kills Tysha, the, the, the whore, just purely out of spite. He murders her. He does not, it is not a like fit of pee. It is, there's no justification. He just murders her. Because uh, she's even like, Crying and like trying to like be like he like like your father abused me I didn't want to do this and he murders her and then he goes and kills his father 
And then through the next book, he is in a murderous rage. He wants more revenge. He hates the world. And part of what he has not actually met Daenerys in the books yet, but he is on that path. And part of the implication, because he is actually not just meeting Daenerys, he is building an army of mercenaries to offer to Daenerys. And so Mm. I think the whole implication in the books is that he is going to Daenerys because he sees in her the power he wants to burn down his family he is so angry at. And that completely changes the trajectory Uh of where Daenerys is heading because what that's going to cue you as a reader is that Tyrion is getting in bed with this woman metaphorically for all the wrong reasons whereas in the show they portray it as she's the person who gives his life meaning that is that is this is what I mean by when the show goes off book it doesn't understand its its own identity in any way yes that that makes so much of that subplot in the show makes make more sense is a weird way to phrase it but it makes sense of like why it feels so disjointed and and odd and how it's not something that's actually properly built to because yes i think you're right like i think that's one of the things that makes it feel very inconsistent is there are moments where the show is like oh this is like ominous and she's murdering these people um and then Tyrion comes in and yeah no the way the show portrays it is Tyrion's just like yeah he's in the right and it's like he's so like you know, it's bad that he kills Shay. Well, the one thing that the show is not clear on is how much of a relationship she had had with Tywin. I think it's like, I think, because I think that, the, like, ultimately the show's version is probably fairly similar to what the books are, like, technically, of that, like, oh, she didn't want to do any of that really, like, that she was tricked and she actually does like or love Tyrion the way the show actually just visually presents it, though, doesn't give you any confirmation. No, because it allows I've... you very easily to read that into. Oh, Shay was like hired by Tywin the whole time to do this. Like that was something that's like, is that what's going on? And there's never any questioning of it properly. Um, yeah, and and any confirmation of like what that relationship was. I always read it in the show as that Shay just gets angry at Tyrion in season four for trying to kick her out. Yeah. And she shacks up with Tywin, and it's just purely spite between them. Whereas in the book, it is like Tyrion has this whole inner monologue where he cannot trust this love, and the ultimate reveal is that Shay probably does love him, and that's why he murders her. Like, he can't take it. Like, it is... It is T- Tyrion is a really dark character in the books, and he is not in the... Sh- like, Tyrion is the voice of reason up to the series finale where he gives the monologue that ends the show. Like, it's it's a very yeah. different thing in the show. He, he is, like, unobjectively in the show a, like, good... Capital G, good character. Like, he's yes. a good person. He's the person you're supposed to root for. Like, for most of the show, I've just kind of felt like a... Like, honestly, maybe they should just cut everything else in Game of Thrones and just do a show about this character because yeah. he's so much more interesting than most other stuff in other seasons. Um, but, yeah, so then having him go to join Daenerys makes her seem like, like, oh, this is the path to... as she Because I just got, like, I'd seen this line and, like, screenshot on Twitter so much fucking during the finale of the I'm going to break the wheel thing. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I just got that. And so it's like, uh, oh, like that's what the show feels like it's keying up and setting up, especially by sending like the guy who has been the only person in any way actually competent with power and governance, which is Tyrion Lannister. Everybody else sucks at it. Yep. Like, like let's talk about Cersei for a second because Cersei's a character that has frustrated me for most of the show. 
she has a line in season one when Ned Stark comes up to her and is like, I'm going to tell you that I know about the incest stuff because I'm an honorable man. I'm going to tell you and like give you a chance to fix this. And she says to him like, oh, you just you don't know how to play the game, do you? And that's, I think, a very ironic line for her to say because she has no fucking clue what she's doing for this whole fucking show. Only now is she starting to actually be the kind of cardinal Richelieu type figure that I had heard she was of like the real power behind the throne kind of thing. Because for most of the show, she's just like kind of despondent and snaps at people because she has no control over Joffrey and she just really likes her kids. Um, but that's it. Like that's, and that feels like mostly what her character has been is like, I really like my kids a lot. And I also just don't know how to play any sort of political game because anytime she tries to do anything, it's stupid and it blows up in her face and she can't do it well. Um, like down to, I'm going to like incite this whole religious cult and give it a huge amount of power and it's going to immediately blow up in my face because I have no actual ability to control them in any way. I just think I do. And so Cersei yeah. in the show, she comes across to me as like a big fucking idiot that just, it, it, and it and it's, it starts getting into like the mother stuff starts getting into a lot of like uncomfortable gender politics stuff at some point of like, why is like, I get it. She's a mom and she loves her kid, but or her kids, but that being like her sole motivation for like everything so far has just made me desperately want all of her children to die. So you can do something with her, which happily is starting to happen. And now she's getting more interesting character because her, like her sole thing being that I'm a mom that I love my kids by keep on putting like because I'm an idiot I keep on putting them in situations that's going to get them killed. Ugh. It's, it's yeah. frustrating. Cer- Cersei in the books does not become a POV character until book 4, so post season 4, post Storm of Swords. And that means you only start hearing her thoughts and everything after like Joffrey's death and all of the t- and Tywin's death. So, like, mm-hmm. Tywin is, like, the real seat of power for those first four seasons. And you don't, in the books, we don't transition to hearing Cersei until she becomes the de facto seat of power and has to learn how to wield it. And she does mess up early on, but, like, that's the start of her arc. The problem is that the show can't really keep her in the background for four seasons. So they yeah. have to keep her front and center, but they also don't heavily change her trajectory. So I kind of agree. Lena Headey is phenomenal. Yes. But... But there is not a ton of forward character momentum until the point in the show where you're at. And then there's a lot. And then in season eight, they fuck it all up unbelievably poorly. Yeah, which is disappointing because she is right now, she is the best part of the show. For yeah. Sure. Like her and in season six, she is. The season six finale is one of the two or three best episodes. And it's pretty much all because of her. So Cool. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. I'm very excited for Tom and dying. I can't wait for him to die. Uh, he sucks. He's got a good um, death. Um, I'm excited. Yeah, I'd like yeah. to dance. Um, let's talk about from who is, to me, the most beleaguered, useless, frustrating fucking character in the whole show. Sansa Stark. Poor Sansa. Oh, oh my god. You spend four seasons with this fucking girl trapped in this, like, relationship with... Like, first, like, like relationship with Joffrey, where she's trapped in the, the Red Keep. Um, she's sort of the plaything of this sadistic motherfucker. And just... That's it. Um, and then at the end of season two, she gets this offer from the Hound that's like, I will take you out of here. And, and, and this, is, this is a good example of what I was talking about earlier about like every fucking scene has to end on a cliffhanger is that scene just cuts away. 
and then you find out. I think it's you don't find out until the next season, maybe. That no, I think it's you find out in the finale. It's the next yeah, so episode. It's in the yeah. finale. You find out. Oh no, she just didn't accept that, and she's just there. You don't know why. You don't get to see that conversation. You don't get to know. She has no justification for why she isn't going, and you know the hound is just gone. Um, that she stumbles on Arya, like like in that like. And, and then to so to be like, okay, this character has basically been stuck in autopilot, just like circling mode for two seasons. Finally, she's going to get away and do something something good. And then you find out, oh, nope, that's not happening. And then you spend season three with her in that situation doing nothing. You spend season four with her. Um, and she finally in season four, at the beginning, she escapes with Peter Baelish. And now she's just like kind of under the control of Peter Baelish, but at least like there's a little bit more story going on. This is one of the reasons why season four is one of the best seasons. Is Sansa Stark has some change going on. She's not well, in the same set in every fucking episode, which she is in in all of the first three seasons. And she starts learning from this guy because she you start seeing sort her of. take cues from like yeah yeah she she sort of starts changing in in kind of taking the turn like the. The turn of maturation that that character needs to take and needed to take by the end of season two. She started trying to do it in season four. And then in season five, they, she, he, Peter Baelish just foisted her on fucking Ramsey Bolton. And she's stuck in that situation for all of season five. I now know why people were up in arms about like the rape yeah. scene stuff. Um, that was the thing that I had heard that like when people started to kind of turn on Game of Thrones during season five. is like, yeah, it's bad. Um, and it's like it's bad just in terms of like I think how it's executed, but it's especially in the context of the rest of the show. It's so pointless. It's so meaningless. It gives us no new information. Like it basically just feels like they wanted to, to they wanted to do Sansa actually having been married to Joffrey to get those scenes, but that's not the way the plot went. So they're like, well, let's just do it anyways. Literally, so have this other fake Joffrey character to marry her off to. Literally because none of this is in the books. Mm -hmm. Because, so, Ramsay is my mortal fucking enemy. I hate that character. I hate everything that character represents. I think it is the the, the nadir of the show until you get to Euron Greyjoy, who is just Ramsay too. And I Ramsay have met Euron Greyjoy now, and he's dumb. Oh my, fuck that, yeah. But, like, at least he's not around for five seasons. Like, it's just the show needs to... The show clearly was so in love with the sadism of Joffrey. But Joffrey dies. So to replace Joffrey, they introduce Ramsay. Now, Ramsay is in the books, minor, like, background. He occupies a similar role, but we don't see a lot of him. Mm -hmm. So, like, he's effectively a a created character for the show, the way they use him. And, like, because in the books what happens is it's all from the point of view of Theon as Reek. And there is a totally different character who gets married off to Ramsay and is raped... Um, but it's portrayed through the eyes of Theon, who is basically raped alongside her by Ramsay. And the show replaces that character with Sansa. So, like, we're on this upward trajectory. And as you say, it's in fits and starts, but at least it's heading in the right direction with Sansa. And then it's like, nope, she's going to get raped. And in season eight, which you haven't gotten to yet, she's going to say that it was a good thing because it made her into a woman. <laughs> and it's so bad. I'm Just prepare. You think I'm exaggerating? I'm not. I'm not. This show loves rape and it loves torture and it loves it far too fucking much. And I think all the stuff with Ramsey is just the nadir of that show's sadistic qualities, which are so over the top. And and it is something that feels mostly pointless. Like, yeah. it's, 
like there's no real constructive stuff done by cutting to him and that bullshit all the time and so like Sansa is being married to him is a justification to keep on cutting to that character to the point where like the show is as invested in Ramsay at this point as it was in Joffrey when Joffrey was king um and but there's nothing there's no depth to that scenario there's no like political interest in it other than like the Starks need to take back the north but it's that it's just so far off and just not really concerned for me as a viewer at this point. It just feels weird and frustrating. And again, it just, they take this character that was on this upward trajectory and just kind of resets her. And like, here we go. You get back into captivity, back at, as the plaything of some sadistic motherfucker. We're just going to make it even worse now because you're actually married to him. Um, and and then the rest so of the series for... The rest of the series for Sansa is her having the right idea in every scenario and the men not listening to her and then her fixing the situation and the men taking credit for it and that will go on through the series finale. And the Um, thing that's frustrating is that because they spent so long getting Sansa to this point, I just can't care about her character. Like, I I just can't... It's like, you can... Again, any reasonable show would have started doing what the show is doing now with Sansa midway through season six around the beginning of season three like that's where this needed to happen or you just don't cut to her for like like you'd spend a whole season not cutting to bran just don't do any sansa stuff if there's nothing to be done like don't make her a focal point character of multiple scenes in most episodes there's nothing to do with her yeah so infuriating the one more thing on the ramsey thing is you're like most of it's pointless it is because what you the the theoretical reason for like narrative agency of why you would cut back to Ramsay and show him do something horrible is to establish that he is bad and sadistic and is a villain who must be taken down. The problem is Game of Thrones thinks we need to be reminded of that every other episode, yeah. and we don't. Like once he's cut off Theon's dick in season three in that awful scene, like we never need that again, right? Like, we yeah. we don't need more of it. But they feel like every episode or so, like... Because there's also the whole thing... I think this has happened where you are, where he kills Asha, the wildling woman. Yes, and she yeah. Tries, yeah, just like... They, they was, constantly... Need, yeah. That was the most, like, comic book crossover as bullshit of... Let's bring back this, like, C-tier character that everyone's kind of forgotten about just so we can kill her to make him feel more evil. It's yeah. just like... I had honestly forgotten that there was another Stark kid running around yep. somewhere... Um, and because it felt like the show had forgotten about it until, yeah, you bring him back and then he just murders her. Yeah. And it's, and it's also sexual violence because she's like trying to seduce it. So it's like, yeah, it's, uh, that's the bad stuff. Yeah. No, it's all that stuff's very frustrating. It makes me realize we had never on the podcast actually, because we talked about this off the air, but yeah, the Ramsey Bolton stuff in season three where he's introduced with him and Theon is, is maybe... Probably the worst subplot I've ever seen in a TV show. Because yeah. all it is, is every episode you'll just cut to a scene of Theon Greyjoy, a character that the show just doesn't know at all what it wants to do with. I'm amazed that he's still in the show. Like, me too. How, how has he not been killed at this point? It's just fucking pointless. Um, he got back to the Iron Islands. Great. Like, fucking God. Like, I... I really was so rooting so hard when he escaped with Sansa that he was just going to get it. Like, I'm going to hold them off and then get killed. Because he does the I'm going to hold them off thing, but then he survives. It's like, why? Just I know. I hate kill Some people love Theon, and I don't get it. I think he's one of the worst characters, and the show 
outside of season two, and even then they do it very clumsily, never has a direction for him, and it's yeah. awful. Like, Theon Greyjoy is one of those characters that, like, when I'm watching the show, I feel actively bad for the actor. Yep. He has to play this material. Like every Season time... 3, he is strapped to a fucking cross for 10 episodes. Yes. For and for no reason to get back to that the season 3 stuff. Why you started talking about this? Because you're just constantly cutting to Theon Greyjoy like being tortured in this basement by a character we have never seen before. We later find out that he's Ramsay. In the moment we don't know who he is. We don't know why he's torturing Theon. We don't know any of like it's like, is it one of, is he like torturing them because it's like he's fighting for the Starks? Is it one of the Ironborn that's doing? Like, what the fuck is going on? They spend the whole season just extending that out over and over again. Every fucking episode, you will cut to it, getting nothing, no new information. Like, there's no economy of storytelling going on. It's just, here's another scene where we get to have some fucking torture porn going on. And, and like, in any kind of narrative function it could serve is. You know, cut in half by the fact that you don't know most of the characters in those scenes. You only know Theon Greyjoy. And it's like, this is something you can do for like the first 30 minutes of Saw. You can't do it across an entire season of fucking television. And that's how you're introduced to Ramsay Bolton as a character. And it's like, so bizarre. It's such a botched execution of a dumb idea. It's just like fucking ridiculous. And so yeah, you get this actor who signed on to Game of Thrones to be like like oh, I'm like a cool like sword guy who's maybe doesn't love being with the Starks um who but then in season 2 he's just like I'm full with you, Rob Stark, King of the North. Like we're we're brothers and there was some tension in season 1 about me not being a real Stark by name, but that's never addressed again and i'm totally with you and now i'm going to go to the iron islands to recruit my people for to bring you to your your side and then i'm just going to betray you for no reason it's like nope i'm just going to betray you for for the iron born motherfuckers it's like so just random bullshit twist and then that character has been ruined so thoroughly and i'm so frustrated that they like why use the cool wildling lady from the early seasons as your cheap death just kill Theon. Please, for the love of God, just kill him. He makes it almost to the very end. Oh, You've got a lot more Theon, and it never gets good. That's fantastic. Yeah. He's got yeah. a stupid death, too. People thought it was cool. It's fucking dumb. Anyway. Yeah, that was a big bitching session about Game of Thrones. Um, it's, it's a frustrating TV show. Like, it's got so many good elements to it, but it's like... Again, there's something hilarious to me about watching that show and then also watching Mobile Suit Gundam. It's like, if you could just, like, get 1% of, like, the narrative economy and, like, insight of Gundam and sprinkle it onto Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones could be such a good TV show. As it is, it's just such a meandering fucking mess that has moments of greatness every episode, but... Is just immediately spoiled by cutting to something you don't care about that it has no idea what it's doing with, and it's just constantly fumbling the fucking ball over and over and over again. It's a, it's just a TV show that's like constantly falling flat on its face, and it's just buoyed by good source material and a lot of production values. Yep, I am excited to hear your thoughts on the final two seasons when it gets really bad. Yeah, I'm curious to see, you know, I'm so close to the end that I'm fully committed at this point. There was a moment early on in Season 5, when I think I'd watched the first two episodes of Season 5, I think, think I said to you, I'm not sure if I'm going to actually go through with this. Um, and then I got, and I was like, once I finished Season 5, I was like, nope, I'm so close to the end. Once I realized that I effectively am almost done, 
um, because the last two seasons are not full seasons. It's like, well, shit. Now I'm now I'm committed. Now I have to see for myself for realsies with all the context. I I need to see what happens in the last few episodes. Yep, I'm excited. Our listeners are excited. I'm sure. Sean, are you excited for Benioff and Weiss to do a Star Wars movie? Oh God. Oh God, no! For the love of God, no! Yeah. All right. Um, we'll be back next week. We'll talk about something fun. Sean, I know we've promised this on the podcast before, but now it's summer next week. Do you want to do the two towers finally? Sure. Fuck it. I can do that. Let's. Let's. let's that's a good idea. Let's watch and talk about good fantasy. Movie. Yes. On film. Yes. Let's. Let's do, that. do it next week. Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. We'll also have another episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. It'll be a fun week here on the podcast. We'll see you then. Uh, Yeah, I just got to go dive back into those fucking Game of Thrones mines. Got to get it done.